This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Human Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 89th episode of the program. Today is April 7th, and before we get started, I have to thank all of these individuals for their overwhelming support. Each and every single one of you are so kind. You responded to the YouTube advertiser crisis in the largest numbers ever, so we've never had a week bigger when it comes to Patreon signups, new members on HumanistReport.com, new PayPal donations. Honestly, I mean, you guys, you guys are so great. So thank you all so much. I will be thanking each and every one of you individually towards the end of the episode, but just for now at the beginning, so we can quickly get into the issues. I threw all of those names up on the screen because each and every single one of those people, they took time out of their day to locate our Patreon page, uh, to find our website. They took time to donate their hard-earned cash to us, and and that's something that I I truly appreciate. So the fact that you believe in the show and the progressive message, I think each and every single one of you deserves individual recognition, so stay tuned to the end of the show. I will be thanking everyone every single one of you. So on today's episode, we've got a really depressing show, unfortunately. So first, I will dive into the United States' new war in Syria, and we'll also talk about North Korea as well, because Syria might not be the only country we're invading. Also, I'll discuss a third war, the war on the internet that is being carried out by the FCC's chairman, Ajit Pai, and additionally, I'll talk about Noam Chomsky's interview with Democracy Now!, specifically what he had to say about the 2016 election and the Democratic Party's Russian hysteria, and Hillary Clinton is back in the news and she's blaming Bernie Sanders for her defeat. Also, Trump signed away your online privacy and Mitch McConnell nuked the filibuster when it comes to Supreme Court nominees. I'll talk about that and additionally, Democrats are worried about the rising support for single-payer health care and how that may impact their 2018 electoral chances. And finally, I will catch up with Sam Ronan. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Bear with me. This will not be a fun show just based on the topics that I have to cover, but the show has to cover these topics. It's very important. So let's go ahead and jump right in. As of Thursday, April 6th, we are now officially at war with Syria because President Donald Trump launched 59 Tomahawk missiles at a Syrian airfield. Now, I feel sick to my stomach saying this, but we are witnessing the start of a new U.S. foreign policy catastrophe. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. It is in this vital national security interest of the United States to prevent and deter the spread and use of deadly chemical weapons. There can be no dispute that Syria used banned chemical weapons, violated its obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention, and ignored the urging of the UN Security Council. Years of previous attempts at changing Assad's behavior 
have all failed and failed very dramatically. As a result, the refugee crisis continues to deepen and the region continues to destabilize, threatening the United States and its allies. Tonight I call on all civilized nations to join us in seeking to end the slaughter and bloodshed in Syria. Now, do we actually know that Assad did in fact use chemical weapons against his own civilians? We don't. We can't prove that at this point because in 2015, we found out that ISIS was potentially storing and using chemical weapons. So we can't say that Assad did in fact do this. However, the media and political establishment decided that even though we haven't conducted an investigation, this is the narrative that we're going with. This is what we are forcing people to believe. And if you don't agree with this narrative, you're a bad person. That's basically what's happening. Now, we also know that it doesn't benefit Assad at all to use chemical weapons because he knows that if he did use chemical weapons against his own citizens, which would be a war crime, the United States would respond militarily. And furthermore, Assad handed over Syria's remaining stockpile of chemical weapons back in 2014 to be destroyed. So if in 2014, Assad handed over his chemical weapons, and in 2015, we received reports that ISIS might be storing and using chemical weapons, and in 2016, we learned that ISIS lost a substantial amount of ground in Iraq and Syria, so in other words, he's winning the war, how can we say that it was Assad? That wouldn't make sense. I mean, the main point is that we don't know. The United States government can pretend as though they can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Assad used chemical weapons against his own citizens, but we don't know. That's a fact. We don't know. There's been no investigation at this point. But I mean, even if we can say, let's let's grant them that Assad did in fact use chemical weapons against his own citizens, does this mean we should go to war? No. One, because if you're worried about civilian deaths, which is why you don't want him to use chemical weapons against civilians, well, going to war would inevitably cause more civilian casualties. And furthermore, when the United States intervenes for humanitarian reasons, we tend to make things a lot worse. You know, because we kind of have a knack for that. We have fucked up how many countries now? Vietnam, Iraq. We just are incapable of learning our lesson. So if you honestly think that, you, that the United States will be a hero here, I'm sorry, but you're horribly mistaken. So one, we don't have evidence that Assad used chemical weapons. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And two, if he did use it, which we don't know yet, how are we going to improve the situation by bombing him and killing more civilians? Case in point, Donald Trump's airstrikes killed civilians. Five people were killed and seven were wounded in the missile strike. If you bomb an airbase, of course there's going to be civilian casualties. So here's what we did so far. We responded to Assad's alleged use of chemical weapons on his own people by saying, hey, Assad, you know what? don't kill civilians, and then we bombed him and then killed more civilians. I'm sure that's definitely going to teach him not to kill civilians when we go in and kill civilians to punish him for killing civilians. It makes no sense. Left is right, up is down, the world is upside down right now because we are in Orwellian times. We are in Orwellian times where everyone, the media, the political establishment, they're using doublespeak and they don't want us to know the truth and they don't want to know the truth. They don't want an investigation because they've been trying to go to war with Syria for years now and President Obama didn't want that to be the case. But now they are using this to start 
a new war and potentially escalate tensions between the United States and Russia as a result. Now, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where President Trump is going back on a campaign promise? He promised to remain non-interventionist when it comes to Syria. He was relatively consistent throughout the course of his campaign that we should be hands-off when it comes to Syria because Assad and Russia are fighting ISIS. So why would we intervene and topple the Assad regime if they're doing what we want them to do? But Donald Trump went back on his word. How did we get here? Well, what we see now is the media and warmongers in Congress in both parties pushing us and pushing Trump into war and getting us to approve of this action. First, after the chemical attack, John McCain talked about what he expected President Trump to do. I want, to say, I want him to hear him say, we're going to arm the Free Syrian Army. We are going to uh, dedicate ourselves to the removal of Bashar Assad. We're going to have the Russians pay a price for their engagement. The Iranians and Hezbollah are also heavily involved. All players here are going to have to pay a penalty, and the United States of America is going to be on the side of people who fight for freedom, and, uh, and we will not sit by and watch chemical weapons being used to slaughter innocent women and children. So let's take a moment here to break down John McCain's plan. So one, he wants Trump to arm the free Syrian army, i.e. the moderate rebels. However, we already did that. When we armed moderate rebels, we were actually arming Al-Qaeda and Nusra, and in some cases ISIS. So when you arm moderate rebels, those arms fall into the hands of terrorists. Hence why Tulsi Gabbard introduced a bill calling on the U.S. government to stop arming terrorists in Syria. So that's a stupid idea. He also says that uh, he wants Trump to commit to the removal of Assad. So in other words, he wants ISIS to take full control of Syria because if there's no Assad regime there, then... Who's going to be in charge? It's going to be ISIS that takes over because they are the next in command just in terms of military strength. So that's a stupid idea. And he also states that he wants Russians, Iranians, and Hezbollah to pay a price. So in other words, we also attack Russia and Iran and also invade Lebanon to root out Hezbollah. So I mean, what he's saying is that he wants to attack Syria, Russia, Iran, invade Lebanon, I mean, do you, do you hear the words that are coming out of your mouth, John? You're a psychopath. You're a lunatic. And he's been wanting war in these countries for years. During his own presidential campaign, he joked about bombing Iran. So this is someone who is completely unhinged. He's a deranged lunatic. And he is given a platform by the mainstream media to influence Donald Trump, saying, Trump, this is my wish list. Please do this. But he's not the only warmonger who has been on the mainstream media pushing Donald Trump for intervention. Uh, our allies in the Middle East have been very clear that they are interested in doing the work on the ground, but they, we have to accept that there can be no Assad in Syria. Keep in mind, Assad is creating this brutal environment that I think is maturing the ground and making it easier for ISIS to recruit. If you're a 10-year-old kid, your dad was killed by somebody and you see ISIS as the only, as the only kind of opponent to Bashar al-Assad who brutalized your family mm -hmm. and you don't have an education, you don't have opportunity, you're gonna be recruited. So I would like to see long-term humanitarian safe zones, a no-fly zone enforced by the United States and its allies, and then ultimately there will need to be a ground force, but it does not need to be American troops because I think the Middle East partners, and they've said it, are willing to do it. We have to accept that there could be no Assad in Syria because what Assad is doing, he's making it easier for ISIS to recruit. So what this guy wants to do is he wants to take Assad out of the equation, thus leaving ISIS in control, and apparently that will make it less easier for them to recruit if they're in control. 
That makes no sense at all. Nobody is using logic, but warmongers don't have logic. They just want war, and they are willing to say and do anything that gets us to that goal, because their defense contractors want to make money, and they help these warmonger idiots get elected, so I mean, they're going to say everything, even if it makes absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. So it's ridiculous. Now, he also says that he wants a Syrian no-fly zone, so in other words, he wants war with Russia, because he's going to tell Russia, you know, we're setting up this Syrian no-fly zone, and if you violate it to bomb ISIS, we're going to shoot down your plane thus sparking a new world war because if we shoot down a russian plane that's an act of war so he wants war with syria he wants war with russia uh and he also wants a ground war but he's telling you you know rest assured uh we don't have to put american boots on the ground because our middle east partners they've said that they'll commit to a ground war so we don't have to do anything you know just like in iraq rest assured we're not going to do that we're not going to start a ground war with syria uh, well, guess what, dipshit? Nobody trusts a single word that you're saying. Now, if you have anyone within the media, any politician, who's willing to just be reasonable, well, the media treats that individual completely like they're just an idiot. And there's never been a more clear case of an agenda for war being driven by the media than there was on CNN. So what a journalist tried to do is pull on the heartstrings of a congressman who didn't want to go to war with Syria, and she showed a video of a little girl asking for help, and the implication here was that if you don't actually want to go to war with Syria, then you must not care about this little girl. Now, take a look at how she tries to guilt trip this congressman. She wants for the children of Syria to be able to play and go to school. She's pleading for help. What do you say to her, Congressman? So even though it was our Middle East foreign policy that destabilized the entire region, which was in part responsible for the Syrian civil war, we are apparently going to be the heroes too, and we can intervene and save this little girl and not make matters worse? She honestly believes this? This is what this host is implying here. Now, for those of us that don't want to intervene, we don't want our government to end up killing even more civilians. We don't trust the government. And if you think that Donald Trump, who said you have to take out the families of ISIS, is going to be the hero here who can intervene and save the day in Syria? Well, I've got a bridge to sell you. But here's how this hack of a journalist responded to a congressman who's a Republican, mind you, that dared to be reasonable and pay special attention to her facial reactions. I think what she's asking for is something that all, all children should enjoy. And I think that our intervention in Syria has prolonged the civil war and it is not helping there. Uh, President Trump campaigned on a more restrained fiscal or I'm sorry, a more restrained foreign policy and I hope that's what we see. And, you know, we haven't created a better school environment for the children in Iraq, uh, frankly, by destabilizing that country. And I don't think it serves the children of Syria or anybody in the United States to further destabilize Syria. So you say, you see these, you hear that plea from her, you see the images coming out of Syria, and you think the best policy for the United States right now is to do nothing. What I'm saying is we could, we might end up making the situation worse if we launch airstrikes, if we, uh, against their airplanes, against hard targets on the ground. The, uh, so we really need to step back and take a good look at this. The first casualty of war is the truth, and it's hard to know exactly what's happening in Syria right now. I'd like to know specifically how that release of, of chemical gas if it, uh, if it did occur, and it looks like it did, how that occurred. 
because I don't, frankly, I don't think Assad would have done that. It does not serve his interests. It would tend to draw us into that civil war even further. Who, and who do you think? Who do you think is behind it? You think you? Who do you think is behind it? You know, you've got a war going on over there. Uh, supposedly, that airstrike was on an ammo dump, and so I don't know if it was released because there was gas stored in the ammo dump or not. Uh, that's plausible. I'm not saying that's what I think happened, but Are I you're think more inclined to believe the position of of what Bashar al-Assad is saying and what the Russians are saying right now than more inclined to agree with, believe what your even your colleagues here in the United States believe is truth that this is Assad and what human rights observers over there say is Assad? I don't think it would have served Assad's purposes to do a chemical attack on uh, on his people. So I, you know, it's hard for me to understand why he would do that if he did. Congressman Tom Massey, thanks for your time. So she states, so you hear that plea from her and you think the best thing for the United States to do right now is nothing. This hack journalist honestly thinks that she's being the good person. She thinks that we should go to war for humanitarian reasons. No, you're not the humanitarian. You are the bad guy. The United States is the bad guy. We killed more than 200,000 innocent civilians in Iraq. We catalyzed an Iraqi civil war. And Trump did what you would consider the quote-unquote humane thing. And even more innocent human beings died. War will never be the humanitarian option. You are not the good person. She thinks she's the good person. You're not. You're the bad person here. You're the villain. You are the person who will lead to more deaths if we do what you want to do. But thankfully for you, uh, Trump is doing what you want to do. We intervened. We bombed Syria. And now more civilians are dead. Congratulations. You got your policy. How'd that work out for you? And when this representative pointed out that our presence would ultimately make matters worse, she just wasn't hearing it. And she kept making these faces as, as if she was just so appalled. And I mean, the most ridiculous part is the juxtaposition that she talked about here. She said, you're willing to believe Assad and the Russians other than your colleagues. Uh, yeah, we probably shouldn't believe people, regardless of their political affiliation, if they actually have defense contractor donors that profit off of never-ending war. So this guy is not someone who is siding with Assad and Russia, he's siding with the belief that's reasonable, that we shouldn't get involved because we'll make matters worse. That's common sense. I think we've demonstrated time and again that we're incapable of not making situations worse. So let's not do it again. The U.S. government does not intervene in foreign countries for humanitarian reasons. We do it for oil. We do it for money. We do it for geopolitical influence. So this idea that going to war with Syria is a humanitarian thing to do is a joke. Now, if you remember the warmonger that we heard from earlier, Representative Kinzinger, well, he heard what the more reasonable representative said, and he responded by saying that he literally took the talking points out of Putin's mouth. I was awestruck when I heard somebody say this. Literally took the talking points out of Putin's mouth and out of the regime's mouth and recited them to an American audience, despite the fact that the president and the American intelligence said, it is not the regime and it is not Russia. That made me sick. Frankly, I was ashamed for him being a Republican saying something like that. So not only do you have people in the media giving someone who is daring to be reasonable the stink eye, but you have his own colleagues calling him out because he wants to be reasonable and not go to war with another country because that would lead to more civilian casualties. So, I mean, if you're, if you're claiming to care about civilian deaths, then you shouldn't do something that will facilitate even more death and destruction. But 
reason be damned because the politicians and the media hacks that are more conservative got what they want. We got a new war with Syria. Now, what's troublesome is that this has broader implications. This isn't just about the United States and Syria. This is about the United States and Russia escalating tensions. So the intercept explains why airstrikes are risky. One U.S. military official said the decision to allow the strikes, which would kill Russians, signals a significant change in policy by the Trump administration. A decision by Trump to go forward with the plan would be a reversal from the Obama administration, which denied multiple airstrike proposals that would likely cause Russian personnel casualties in Syria. So, I mean, by going to war with Syria, it's not just that we're going to war with Syria. We might actually be getting more than we bargained for. Now, people are contending that progressives are just being overly reactionary right now because this couldn't possibly lead to World War III because, I mean, the U.S. military warned Russia before launching these strikes. But, I mean, the same people who are assuring us that this won't lead to World War III have been the same ones vilifying Russia, explaining to us just how scary Russia is and how uh, Trump is a puppet of Putin. Now they're saying that it's not actually going to aggravate Russia, that we're going to take out one of their allies. I mean, that's not going to have any <laughs> problematic consequences now, is it? But that's wrong. Russia actually suspended an agreement they had with the U.S. that prevented them from entering direct conflict with the U.S. military. So this is very bad. And now, not only do we have a new war with Syria, but we are looking at the start of what could potentially lead to World War III. And if you think that's being hyperbolic, you're wrong. It's not hyperbolic. We have already seen tensions between the United States and Russia escalate to Cold War levels. I mean, NATO is performing military exercises on Russia's border. Russia annexed Crimea. I mean, we're seeing escalated tensions. We're seeing an ongoing trend of the United States and Russia being at odds with each other. And to say right now that this couldn't lead to World War III, well, even if that's not the case, we need to make sure that we take every precaution to not do that. Now, I just want to, since we've been talking about all the crazy people, I want to share some reasonable voices. So, Glenn Greenwald, who I respect very much, states, Few things are more dangerous than when bipartisan consensus starts to emerge, urging a new war. They trust Trump to do this? Amazing. And Rania Kalik states, anybody promoting U.S. escalation in Syria is pushing for World War III and killing lots and lots and lots of Syrians in government areas. And she's a journalist that's actually been to Syria. She's heard from Syrians. She knows what we should and shouldn't be doing right now. And taking out Assad and putting ISIS in control is not what we should be doing. But both Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, Democratic leaders, apparently support Trump's military action. Now, before you say it, because we all know Hillary bots are going to say it, Mike, aren't you disappointed with yourself for voting for Jill Stein and not coming out to support Hillary Clinton? Because you helped split the votes by not supporting Hillary Clinton. Uh, so now we got Donald Trump who just attack Syria when we could have had Hillary Clinton. But, unfortunately for you, before you say anything else, go further with this stupid argument, Hillary Clinton called for the exact same thing that Donald Trump just did yesterday. I still believe we should have done a no-fly zone. I think we should have uh, been more willing to confront Assad, because remember, the Russians didn't get in at first, uh, and the Iranian help was pretty much on the ground with the so-called... Uh, you know, Revolutionary Guard, Quds Force, and they were, you know, enlisting Hezbollah uh, units to fight on the ground because there was a real fight going on. Um, but Assad had an air force, and that air force 
is the cause of most of the civilian deaths, as we have seen over the years and as we saw again uh, in the last few days. And I really believe that we should have and still should um, take out his airfields and prevent him from being able to use them to bomb innocent people and drop sarin gas on them. So regardless of who you voted for, you were bound to get a military intervention into Syria. Welcome to the duopoly. You got two parties, two options effectively, and both of them will do the same exact thing. If you don't want war, tough shit. You're getting war because this is what our collective political establishment wants us to do. And for those of you claiming that Trump is a puppet of Putin, what do you have to say for yourselves now? He just did something that Russia does not approve of. He just did something that would facilitate the overthrow of one of Russia's biggest allies in that region. So to kind of summarize the situation, we have a deranged, unhinged, lunatic of a commander-in-chief who is now leading us into war with another country, and there is a chance, a very high chance, that this could potentially escalate tensions between the United States and Russia yet again, catalyze a new world war, and lead us down the path of death and destruction on a mass scale. So we don't know what's going to happen. This is only the beginning. But what we can anticipate is a lot more to come of things that are really bad, very damaging, very harmful. Um, and I feel very uneasy right now. All I know is that this will not end well for our country or for the world. When we think about wars, we shouldn't only think about the two countries directly engaged with wars. We have to think about the broader geopolitical consequences because there are other countries involved with certain countries that will come to the defense of the countries that we are attacking. So case in point, Vladimir Putin and Russia seize Syria and the Assad regime as a long-time geopolitical ally. So when we attack Syria, we have to worry about how this will impact the United States' relationship with Russia. And at a time when tensions are high between the U.S. and Russia, it's something that we don't want to be doing. We don't want to do anything that could further put us down the path to a hot war with Russia or make our current cold war between the US and Russia that much worse. Now, the prospect of war alone is troublesome when you consider the amount of innocent civilians that will inevitably die as we bomb their country under this false guise of humanitarianism. But I mean, what's more scary, perhaps, is how one war with a smaller country ultimately pulls us into conflict with another major power that's aligned with it. And I mean, that to me is one of the most terrifying aspects of this story. However, Syria and Russia aren't the only countries that we have to worry about because Donald Trump is talking very tough on North Korea. And if you bomb North Korea, if you take out the Kim Jong-un regime, a country that's much weaker than the United States, obviously, well, then you have to look at the relationship between China and the United States. China is an ally of North Korea, and Trump is now signaling to us that he may want to get involved 
with North Korea. So CNN reports a senior White House official issued a dire warning to reporters Tuesday on the state of North Korea's nuclear program, declaring the clock has now run out and all options are on the table, pointing to the failure of successive administrations' efforts to negotiate an end to North Korea's nuclear program. Trump has repeatedly said he plans to urge China to use its influence over North Korea to help halt its nuclear program, but warned in a recent Financial Times interview that he would act to stop North Korea with or without China's cooperation. The senior White House official who issued Tuesday's ominous missive also said North Korea is a matter of urgent interest for the president and the administration as a whole and emphasized that all options are on the table. Those options could include stepped-up economic sanctions, including against Chinese entities that do business with North Korea, cyber attacks, or military action. So, right before Trump attacks Syria, we get this news. This is the state of international affairs and how the United States has become so bloodthirsty, so nosy that they can't help themselves. They have to intervene everywhere. Everywhere where there is a humanitarian crisis, they have to get involved. And they're not getting involved for altruistic reasons. They're getting involved and they'll ultimately make matters worse. They've demonstrated this time and again in Vietnam and Iraq. We are incapable of doing good when we intervene in other countries. There's no such thing as a war for humanitarian reasons. So if we get involved in North Korea, that will be another catastrophe. Now, we should be afraid of how this would impact the United States' relationship with China because China is very close to North Korea. Now, I don't know why this is the case. They're basically propping up the North Korean economy, which is failing miserably. But I mean, China may be doing this because they share a border with North Korea, so they would probably bear the brunt of the economic consequences of a major refugee crisis. And I mean, although unification of both Koreas would be amazing, and I would love to see that, this is very different than the unification of Germany. And there's a lot of scholars who study Korean politics that think that this would actually be more complex and potentially something that you won't actually be able to do. So trying to get a North Korean democratic regime in place would be very difficult because they have have nothing right now. How would you do that? I mean, the amount of aid that it would uh, require would be huge. So this is an issue that China is either putting off or just they don't want to deal with altogether. So I don't know why they're propping up North Korea. But what I do know is they don't want the United States to attack North Korea or become involved with North Korea. Now, this doesn't mean that I condone the disgusting actions of the North Korean regime. And by saying that I don't want war with North Korea, that doesn't imply that I support Kim Jong-un. But what I am saying is that if we take military action against every dictatorship that does something wrong, I mean, that's not the right route to take. We make matters worse oftentimes, and if we start a war with North Korea, more people will die in that war than they are dying now as a result of the North Korean regime. So, especially after Trump started a new war with uh, Syria... We need to be incredibly vigilant. We need to watch him and watch his administration because it's very clear now that neoconservatives, that the deep state, they've gotten in Donald Trump's ear. He's no longer espousing this non-interventionist rhetoric that he was now uh, during the campaign. And we have to worry about this because Donald Trump is a thin-skinned idiot. He is someone who I think is really malleable. And if there's enough neoconservatives in his ear... He's basically just a puppet to neoconservatives, so this is really scary. 
I don't want war with Syria or Russia, and I certainly don't want a war with North Korea and China simultaneously. So it's up to all of us reasonable people on the left and the right to put pressure on him, to watch him. Because, mother of God, I mean, how many wars do we have to start until we realize that the United States is not a hero? We make matters worse. We are not the world police. We are a destructive force in the world. That's not a controversial statement. That's a factual statement. So, this is so troubling. We are at such really, really terrifying times right now in human history that we are going to have a lot of scary stories to tell our grandchildren if we're able to make it through this. So, as you all know, Congress recently passed a bill that allows internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T to sell your online browsing history without your consent. Now, this bill passed both houses of Congress along party lines, and it went to Donald Trump's desk. So it was really up to him. He had the final say. Was he going to veto this piece of legislation that sells out the American people, or would he sign it? Can you guess what he did? He signed this bill immediately, and anticipating backlash, he tried to do it quietly so that way we wouldn't know that he signed this bill. Recode explains President Donald Trump on Monday officially hit the delete button on federal privacy protections imposed last year on the likes of AT&T, Charter, Comcast, and Verizon. Trump quietly signed into law a bill that blocks the implementation of rules that would have required those internet providers to ask permission before selling sensitive customer data like web browsing histories to advertisers and other third parties the White House confirmed. So, I find it funny that Donald Trump quietly signed uh, this piece of legislation into law because he tends to make a spectacle out of everything, even if it is controversial. I mean, when he signed a bill that moved forward the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, he tried to make a huge spectacle of it. He filmed himself. He talked about how this would be great for business. Uh, but for this, I mean, there's no way you can sell this to the American people, and he knows that even his own supporters, people who read Breitbart News, would be pissed off about this. So what he did uh, was try to sign it quietly. Unbelievable. So guess what, Donald Trump? Uh, this also affects you because just like us, you're an American citizen that's vulnerable. So what we're going to do now is use this law against you and your colleagues in Congress who are all sellouts to the broadband industry. We will be buying your personal history now uh, and publishing it online because if <laughs> if you think that we're going to be the only ones affected by this, you've thought wrong. And here's the thing about this. If you, if you don't like policies, if you disagree with private companies, what we typically have the option of doing is protesting with our dollars. We cancel our accounts and we take our business elsewhere, but we can't do that when it comes to broadband, because if you have Comcast and you don't like the fact that Comcast will be selling out your private information, like your browsing history, like your so social security number even, well, what are you going to do? Nothing, because you cannot go to anyone else because they are typically the only provider. I mean, it doesn't matter where you live in the country. You usually have one or two options for internet. You have no choice, so you are forced to suck it up and deal with these broadband companies taking advantage of you because 
they have a monopoly. You have one option. Now, another component of the story that I really want to highlight is the fact that this is a huge story. I mean, the entire internet is up in arms, even Trump supporters, credit where credit is due. They're calling him out on this. But what I find interesting is that mainstream media outlets like CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, they're completely silent on this. So I, I looked online, I couldn't find really anything from CNN, any segments of them discussing this. I couldn't find anything from Fox News discussing this. I mean, the point is that you could find online publications like the Washington Post talking about this, but if you are someone who only consumes media, only consumes news from the big three, well, you're not going to be very concerned about this. Now, the only mainstream media clip I found was from Rachel Maddow, who included this in a clip. So, I mean, credit where credit is due. Uh, I've been incredibly disappointed with Rachel Maddow, and I think that's an understatement. But she actually talked about this and educated her viewers about why this is harmful. Now, she's doing it because she's motivated by any opportunity she gets to attack Donald Trump and not be objective. But regardless, this is something that you have to talk about. And I mean... For me, as a small news channel, we dedicated two segments to this story last week because this is incredibly important. This is our personal information. And for a party like the Republicans who cares about individual liberty and privacy, or who at least purports to care about those things, they sold us out. I mean, Clay Higgins, again, I want to send a special shout out to Clay. Buddy, you sold us out for $300. So if we gave you 400 bucks, would you reverse that decision? I mean, I want to know the extent to which you are willing to uh, be a puppet for anyone who bankrolls your campaign because it's just ridiculous. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is an abomination and the media should be educating us about this, but they don't want to talk about this. Why? Because if they called out Verizon, AT&T, and Comcast, then Verizon, AT&T, and Comcast might not want to advertise on Fox News, or CNN, or MSNBC. So, uh, this might be the most, um, <laughs> the shittiest week in terms of news, because we just got hit with gut punch after gut punch, and I don't know how much more of this the American people can take. I'm getting sick of this shit. I know you're getting sick of this shit if you're watching this, if you're on the left or the right. I'm tired of them selling us out. I'm tired of it. What's it going to take for them to actually listen to us and do what we want and not do what multinational corporations and billionaires want or broadband providers want? FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is officially preparing for an all-out assault on our nation's net neutrality regulations. Now, this is something that we all knew was coming sooner or later, but the time with which this is actually going to be happening is upon us very soon. We're talking May, we're talking possibly June, that he will be launching his assault on the internet. So according to The Verge, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has briefed telecom trade associations on his plans to scale back net neutrality rules, the Wall Street Journal reports. Pai's plans will apparently maintain the basic concept of net neutrality, but will move the enforcement of the rules back to the Federal Trade Commission rather than the FCC. But while the Wall Street Journal says Pi's plans will preserve the basic principles of net neutrality, giving oversight of the broadband industry back to the FTC would likely end Title II net neutrality as we know it. In order to do its job under Pi's proposed rules, the FTC would need Title II to be rolled back as the body is prohibited from investigating common carriers exactly the kind of enterprise ISPs are qualified as under current rules. It's not yet clear when Pi's plans would come into play, but the Wall 
Wall Street Journal says it could be as soon as May at the FCC's monthly meeting. The June meeting is also a possibility, but Democrats and other net neutrality advocates are likely to raise objections when Pai's concrete plans become public. So notice here what he's doing. It's really sneaky. He's trying to say that, you know, by giving the FTC the authority to enforce net neutrality rules, he's not actually doing away with the rules themselves. He's just handing authority of the enforcement of said rules over to the FTC, which will not enforce those rules. So, I mean, he's still getting rid of net neutrality. He's just trying to do it in a really slimy way. So that way you don't think he's doing away with net neutrality. It's called doublespeak. This is something that George Orwell basically warned us about in 1984, and we are seeing it right now. Now, one thing uh, to mention doublespeak that I want to talk about is, do you know how Republicans uh, recently voted away your right to online privacy? Well, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai actually co-wrote an article in the Washington Post titled, No, Republicans Didn't Just Strip Away Your Internet Privacy Rights. And in it, he assures us that internet service providers have never planned to sell your individual browsing history to third parties. So let me just say how egregious it is that the Washington Post is now literally publishing propaganda for the government, but this makes no sense. Um, so basically... The, the telecommunications industry lobbied Congress, Republicans specifically, to allow them to sell our privacy information without our consent, uh, all for nothing. They lobbied them to get this power now, just so they can do nothing with it. That, that's basically what he's saying by making this argument. How stupid do you think we are, Ajit? How dumb do you think the average American is? And what he's telling us here is that we should trust the internet service providers that rip us off every single month. And it's not like they weren't already selling out our personal information to third parties, right? Oh, wait, they were already doing that. So prior to these rules being repealed, they were already doing that. But he's telling us that they would never sell our browsing history. So, I mean, silly us to think that, you know, we couldn't trust these internet service providers like Comcast who have been selling our, our information without our consent prior to the rules, but I mean, this guy is, he's particularly dangerous. I'd say he's more dangerous than Ted Wheeler because even though, or excuse me, Tom Wheeler, because even though Tom Wheeler also tried to roll back net neutrality rules and proposed fast lanes, he was more open about it. Like he, he called it fast lanes, but that was just, that was brazenly bullshit. But what he's doing, he is, he's saying, I'm not rolling back net neutrality rules. I'm giving the FTC the authority to enforce net neutrality rules, which is technically true, but we all know what's going to happen. So this is a roundabout way that Ajit Pai, who came from the industry, he was a lawyer for Verizon, is going to give his corporate donors what they've been looking for forever. So here's what we've got to do. We've got to act quickly. So in the description box, there will be a link to a page on the Humanist Report website that will provide you with a ton of links and resources and information about how you can get in touch with the FCC and file an official complaint. You can email them, you can call them. And look, I'm begging you to please do this if you care about the internet. This doesn't benefit me. There's not a single ad being run on this page. So if you're a conservative who hates Mike, who hates the Humanist Report, but likes the free and open internet to remain the way it is right now, Follow those links uh, and file a complaint. You don't even have to go to my website. I, I just try to make it easier for people so they would be more inclined to speak out. But just please file an official complaint. You can do that. You can call the FCC and you can make a difference because we stopped the FCC from implementing their anti-net neutrality agenda before. And best believe if we all come together on the left and the right and put pressure on them, we can do it again. It's not impossible, but I think it's going to be more difficult this this time because what we're dealing with 
is someone who is very slimy, who is very disingenuous, who is lying and deceiving the American people at the behest of broadband internet service providers. It's disgusting. So if these changes are coming in May um, or June, like they're saying they will be potentially, we act now. We have to act now. We can't wait until they're proposed, even though I know that the internet itself probably won't react until the rules, rules are proposed. But I mean, we've got to stop them from even being proposed because this guy's going to fight us tooth and nail. But we have to let him know that we won't back down and that we're strong and that as an internet, we're all going to come together to stop corporations from making the internet a place where it's not... It's no longer free, it's no longer fair, where they can censor content and websites that they disagree with. We already see YouTube demonetizing videos that talk about Syria, for example, while promoting CBS News videos about Syria. So we don't need any more censorship on the internet, and the buck stops with us. We can stop this, we just have to come together and do it and put pressure on them and be strong. The Senate has officially voted to confirm Judge Neil Gorsuch to be the ninth justice on the Supreme Court, and this is a huge victory for corporate America because he will undoubtedly do the bidding and rule in favor of large multinational corporations. Now, the question is, how did all of this happen? How did Republicans get their guy on the court after blocking Obama's nominee for a whole year? I mean, they were rewarded for obstructionism, right? Well, in part, we have to thank Democrats for this. So, Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp last week stated that they would be voting to confirm Neil Gorsuch, and just days before the vote, Senator Joe Donnelly joined Manchin and Heitkamp, telling CNN after meeting with Judge Gorsuch, conducting a thorough review of his record and closely following his hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, I believe that he is a qualified jurist who will base his decisions on his understanding of the law and is well respected among his peers. Now, let me remind you that Joe Donnelly, he is a Democrat, not a Republican, who just said that about a conservative Supreme Court justice. So, if there's anything that this tells us, it's that Democrats are incapable of remaining strong, and when push comes to shove, they are willing to cower in fear to the Republicans. Now, thankfully, there were a couple of exceptions, and Jeff Merkley courageously stood up all night trying to filibuster the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, but unfortunately, it didn't work. Now, his efforts may be commendable, but it doesn't matter because what Republicans did was they did a dirty trick. They changed the rules to make sure that Neil Gorsuch was forced on the court. So, how did they do this? Well, once the Republican Party realized that Democrats would be filibustering the vote to confirm Neil Gorsuch, at that point, they needed 60 votes to override the filibuster. So, they decided to change the rules and just do away with filibusters. They nuked it as an option and made it so that way you can no longer filibuster Supreme Court nominees. So that way all they would need to get their guy on the Supreme Court was a 50 plus one vote majority. So the Huffington Post explains, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his fellow Republicans pulled the nuclear rules trigger Thursday, gutting the filibuster rule for Supreme Court nominees after Democrats blocked President Trump's conservative pick, Neil Gorsuch. We need to restore the norms and traditions of the Senate and get past this unprecedented partisan filibuster, McConnell said. Wow. Now, we said this moments before rattling off procedural speak that set the rules to change in motion. That's just shameless hypocrisy right there. He and his party obstructed Merrick Garland from getting on the Supreme Court. And regardless, if you love or hate Merrick Garland, I don't like the guy. But the fact is that Obama 
was the one who was supposed to nominate a justice to the Supreme Court, and they blocked him from doing that. And Mitch McConnell has the nerve to say uh, or to lambast this quote-unquote unprecedented partisan filibuster. They wouldn't even allow a hearing on Merrick Garland. They broke the filibuster record. And Mitch McConnell, in his, in his infinite hypocrisy, is now bemoaning Democrats trying to stand up after they stole this nomination away from Barack Obama. It's just unbelievable. They have no shame whatsoever. They don't care how hypocritical they look. They don't care if it makes them look like jackasses. They got what they wanted. And now we have an extremist, just as extreme as Scalia perhaps, on the Supreme Court again. And let me remind you that your new Supreme Court justice had $10 million in dark money behind him. So it's dark money because companies and corporations and uh, billionaires were spending this money uh, anonymously. So we don't know who's funding him. So if Something that they're involved with, if they're involved in a Supreme Court case, comes up before Neil Gorsuch, we don't know whether or not he'll be forced to recuse himself, or we won't know whether or not he should recuse himself because we don't know where that money was being, uh, where it came from. So this is just, this is a disaster. This is really, really bad news. I mean, in a week just filled with horrible news, this is the cherry on top. This is kind of the the cherry on top of the shit Sunday that we've been force-fed this week. It, it's, it's ridiculous. Neil Gorsuch, corporate America's best number one choice, is now on the Supreme Court. This is a huge blow to anyone who was fighting to get money out of politics, to anyone who wanted Citizens United to be overturned. It's just a huge punch to the gut. A few weeks ago, I talked about a segment on the Rachel Maddow show where she not so subtly suggested that Bernie Sanders supporters didn't dislike Hillary Clinton because of her policy positions, or lack thereof. They actually disliked her because they were the victims of Russian propaganda. So they bought into fake Macedonian clickbait websites that talked about how Hillary Clinton killed people and was a murderer, and that's what influenced their decision to not support Hillary Clinton, according to Rachel Maddow. Now, this is a narrative that, even though it's probably one of the most idiotic things I've ever heard, it's something that spread like wildfire quickly after this segment aired. So Peter Dow, who is one of Hillary Clinton's biggest cheerleaders ever, who used to work for her, states, it is becoming increasingly clear that Bernie's diehard supporters, those who became avowed Hillary haters, were influenced by hashtag Russia. <laughs> and in this headline from Raw Story titled, Russians used Bernie bros as unwitting agents in disinformation campaign, according to a Senate intelligence witness. Well, they explain at Thursday afternoon's meeting of Senate Intelligence Committee, retired General Keith Alexander, former director of the National Security Agency, said that Russian operatives targeted both liberal and conservative voters in its disinformation campaigns during the 2016 election. Democratic Committee co-chair Mark Warner asked the panel if they had any doubt that Russia had attempted to interfere in some aspects of the 2016 election. Alexander said not only did he have no doubt, he could get very specific. He said, quote, Senator, I think what they were trying to do was drive a wedge between the Democratic Party and between the Clinton group and the Sanders group, said Alexander, and then in our nation between Republicans and Democrats. Now, additionally, Newslog's Caitlin Johnstone explains how Cher Blue, which
which is David Brock's propaganda mill, is also pushing this same narrative because they published an article titled, I learned my Bernie Bro harassers may have been Russian bots. Now, I'll link to this article because I think that Caitlin has an excellent five-point counter-argument that just demolishes this idiotic allegation. But I mean, in the end, it goes to show you that this narrative, it actually has spread. Now, as someone who is a Bernie Sanders supporter, who they would consider an avowed Hillary hater, they would suggest that I'm uh, I I'm one of these individuals. I was a Bernie bot. I was a Bernie bro uh, who was influenced by Russian propaganda. Now, typically, something like this should make me mad, and it really did make me mad when I heard Rachel Maddow say it, because that was the first time I heard someone purport this idiotic argument. But really, I just feel sorry for people who believe this because it's so stupid. These people are so deranged that they honestly believe that nobody could possibly dislike their flawed candidate who was one of the most disliked politicians in the country because of her. No, they disliked Hillary Clinton because of Russian propaganda. Well, how about this? Why don't you guys listen to Bernie Sanders supporters? Listen to a Bernie bro, and I will tell you why I disliked Hillary Clinton. So... For me personally, I'll share my story. I don't speak for all progressives, but I think that I speak for a lot of us. Uh, I was planning to suck it up and vote for Hillary Clinton at the start of 2015 when she initially launched her campaign. I argued with some of my colleagues in school. at school. You know, I thought, we have to get Elizabeth Warren to run for president. We have to draft Elizabeth Warren. And they were saying, no, you know, we've got to go with someone who's more qualified. We've got to play it safe. And I was, I was warning them. I was saying, you know what? I'll support Hillary Clinton if push comes to shove. But we have to get someone who's a populist like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, now, Elizabeth Warren decided not to run, so I had prepared myself to vote for Hillary Clinton and hold my nose, even though I would feel dirty doing it. And then Bernie Sanders entered the race, and then we saw how she treated Bernie Sanders and how she rigged the primary. So, I mean, for me, there became a point where I began to see Hillary Clinton as a divisive, destructive figure who would really take the Democratic Party in the opposite direction. And if I could look to any point that really turned me off to Hillary Clinton, where I actually thought for the first time, holy crap, I can't vote for her if she wins. I can't vote for her. I either have to write in Bernie Sanders or vote third party. It was this moment right here. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. Now, I'm showing you that clip because that's a clip of Hillary Clinton doing something that turned me off to Hillary Clinton forever. It was one of the lowest points of Hillary Clinton's career. She was shitting on something that I really believe in. I don't think anyone should die or go bankrupt if they have health insurance but can't afford to get coverage or can't afford to get care if they already have coverage. And so she's saying that we should never move towards single payer. It's never, ever going to come to pass. And at that moment right there, I realized I can't do it. I can't cast my vote for someone who is going against everything that I stand for. I can't cast my vote for someone who's already saber-rattling against Russia, who wants war with Syria. Now, I'm telling you about this and showing you this clip because... Russia didn't encourage me to not like Hillary Clinton. In fact, that was something that Hillary Clinton did. So unless Russia somehow got Hillary Clinton to say those things and shit on a policy that progressives have been fighting for forever, I don't think you can argue that Russia influenced Bernie Sanders supporters. We liked Bernie Sanders because of the policies that he was espousing. He was giving us an alternative to a neoliberal warmongering candidate 
that was running in a supposedly left-wing party. That's not the fault of Russia. Hillary Clinton did this to herself. We rejected her once in 2008 for the more progressive candidate, and she made it very, very difficult to not reject her again when we felt as though we had no other options. So, please, if you are honestly telling me that you think that it was Russia and not Hillary Clinton alone who made us dislike her, then you're blind, my friend. You are you are completely clueless, and you are out of touch with the American people. Now, thankfully, this is the more establishment Democrats and people who are elites who believe this narrative. So, I mean, by saying that we disliked Hillary Clinton because of Russian propaganda and that we're not intelligent enough to distinguish between uh, news that's real and fake, you're insulting our intelligence even more. You're pissing us off even more. You're driving the wedge between the Democratic Party's Hillary wing and Bernie wings even more. So please, anyone who says this is just an idiot. I know that's something that's impolite to say, but it's true. If you believe this, I don't know what to say. You're, you're just dumb. Judge Gorsuch has officially been confirmed to the Supreme Court, but prior to his confirmation, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse was on MSNBC to talk about why the Republican Party was so adamant about getting him on the Supreme Court. He rightfully pointed out that the Republican Party wants someone on the bench that would do the bidding for corporate America, and with $10 million in dark money behind him, it's very clear that Judge Gorsuch will in fact do good things for corporate America. Now, the interview itself took a turn for the worse when Joe Scarborough kind of challenged him on this point and said, you know, it's not really just about money, it's also about judicial philosophy and whatnot. But what happened was Joe brought up a point about Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and said, well, if you care so much about money in politics, who do you support during the primary? And Sheldon Whitehouse's response was ridiculous. He made a complete fool of himself and the interview turned into a disaster of epic proportions that will probably be remembered as the most embarrassing moment of Sheldon Whitehouse's career. Let's watch. They want to rebuild a five to four court that will do the things that their big donors want. That is the only explanation that makes sense in all of this. So it's not just the tit for tat. It's the why that makes one think. Well, I mean, that's not the only political explanation. I mean, there are some people that have different judicial philosophies than you and have different judicial philosophies than Ruth Bader Ginsburg and have different judicial philosophies than Barack Obama. Some of us have a different view of what the Supreme Court could and should and should not do. So I, I don't give a damn about big donors. I don't give a damn about big corporations. I think hedge fund uh, guys in hedge funds and women in hedge funds should pay more than 14% taxes. I think they should pay a minimum 30% taxes at the same time. Uh, you know, and none of that happens in the Senate because of the power of these people, which the Supreme Court gave to them in the Citizens United decision in an unprecedented and very poorly reasoned this decision. This all started with so, Citizens United? Did you support Hillary Clinton or did you support uh, Bernie Sanders? I don't know the answer to that question. I supported Hillary. Hillary, I mean, can you think of a major uh, Democratic candidate in the history of the party that had closer ties to Wall Street than Hillary Clinton? 
I can't. No, but no, no, but she may have been the Democrat with the closest ties, but the Republicans are married at the hip. So please, uh, I, I that's not really of, much of a comparison. Not to not to be difficult, but not to be difficult. Most of the people right I know, now, for Lord's sake. most of the people I know that run <laughs> Wall Street, and you know it's, it's the truth too. By Trump. Oh, you don't want please. me to finish the answer? Well, hold on. You don't want okay. me to? You I'm, go, and then he goes. I, well. It's hard to okay. when I can't finish a sentence. You and I both know that Wall Street wanted Hillary Clinton to win a hell of a lot more than they wanted Donald Trump to win. Oh, please. They were spending money in New Hampshire for Bernie Sanders. Oh, please. Are you? OK, so you're on national television. I want you to know that. And everything I, that you were saying is going down on transcripts. I'm going to ask you again. Is it your position here based on everything you've said before? And that's why I'm asking this question that People that ran Wall Street preferred Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election? Probably not, because he is a potentially dangerous and a very unpredictable okay. person. I agree. But they did not want Hillary Clinton to win. That is why Wall Street money supported Bernie Sanders in Democratic primaries to take her out, because they thought she would be the stronger candidate. You can't pretend that didn't happen. I, I can pretend that can't happen because the well, Clintons had an extraordinarily close relationship with Wall Street, and they have for the past 20 or 30 years. So, Nothing like the Republican Party, not even close. Oh, my God. Republican candidates running for president would love not even close. to have the relations with Wall Street that the Clintons have had over the past 30 years. So anyway. Yeah, right. She gave a speech to Goldman Sachs, and he's put, what, three Goldman Sachs people into the cabinet? Come on. And of course, Which you know, worst. it's a shame. I can't even believe I'm having it. We're even having this discussion. Of course, the Clintons never put people from Goldman Sachs in their, in their cabinets. I don't, even, I don't even know how we got well, here. We'll never know, will we? Well, no, I'm talking about Bill Clinton. Yeah. Wow. That, the cognitive dissonance there is, is very strong in Senator Whitehouse. So when I watch this clip, I can't help but think this is exactly why Democrats have zero credibility because, you know, they talk about money in politics, but when push comes to shove, when they're challenged on their own team doing the same thing they rail against, well, they say, well, yeah, you know, Hillary Clinton, he said specifically, she might have been the Democrat with the closest ties to Wall Street, but I mean, Republicans, they're, they're married to the hip. Okay. That doesn't make you look very good. It makes you look like a hypocrite because what you're saying is, well, you know what? I talk about how money in politics is a problem, but so long as you take less money than the other team, well, then it's not really that big of a deal. So you're a hypocrite, Sheldon. What you did was make a complete and utter fool of yourself and make no mistake about it. He just straight up lied. He said, quote, Wall Street was spending money in New Hampshire for Bernie Sanders. And then he said Wall Street did not want Hillary Clinton to win, which is why Wall Street money supported Bernie Sanders in Democratic primaries. That was perhaps one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. To say that Wall Street didn't want Hillary Clinton to win is tantamount to saying that the sky is green, right? It's so, it's so absurd. It's so stupid that nobody believes it. Even Hillary Clinton would laugh hysterically at that statement because it's so untrue. They did not want Hillary Clinton to win. That is why Wall Street money supported Bernie Sanders. <laughs>
Now, Sheldon, you know, he's a senator. He's a smart guy. He knows that Bernie Sanders was not taking Wall Street money. But, you know, in typical Democratic Party fashion, they like to lie and obfuscate the truth to make themselves look better. Case in point, Hillary Clinton said the same thing during the campaign. She alleged that Bernie Sanders took 200000 in Wall Street money. But this was a claim that was so false, so utterly absurd, that even CNN decided that they wanted to debunk it because it was just too stupid for them. Senator Sanders took about $200,000 from Wall Street firms, not directly, but through the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. You know, there was nothing wrong with that. It hasn't changed his view. Well, it didn't change my view or my vote either. Is that true? Did Bernie Sanders take about $200,000 from Wall Street firms through the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee? No, it's not true. The DSCC did support Sanders when he ran for the U.S. Senate in 2006, and the DSCC gave $37,300 to the Sanders campaign and then spent an additional $60,000 supporting him in campaign advertising. It also gave $110,000 to the Vermont Democratic Party to help Sanders. That adds up to $207,300 from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee for Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party of Vermont. And Wall Street is not the sole source of the DSCC's money. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, the DSCC raised $121.4 million that cycle. Now, of that money, about $10 million of it, so 8%, that came from Wall Street. We're including, when we say Wall Street, contributions from the employees of Wall Street and the PACs, the political action committees of companies in the industries of commercial banks and securities and investment. So what Hillary Clinton is saying about Bernie Sanders is a rather big exaggeration. Actually, using this logic, it's interesting, the biggest single contributor to the DSCC in that election cycle was Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign committee, Friends of Hillary. Goldman Sachs only gave 685,000. So using this logic, Hillary Clinton and her campaign committee gave Bernie Sanders $200,000, right? Wrong. If the Clinton News Network thinks something is such an idiotic claim that they're willing to debunk it, even if it makes Hillary Clinton look bad, then you know you're in the wrong. But I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse, he, he stuck to his guns here, even if uh, the panel literally laughed at him. And he said uh, she gave a speech to Goldman Sachs and he's put three Goldman Sachs people into his cabinet. Again, purporting the notion um, or purporting the idea anyways, that so long as Democrats are a little bit less corrupt than Republicans, then uh, everything is peachy keen. We don't have to worry about money in politics because it just doesn't affect Democrats. The response from the panel was the correct response. They just laughed at him. They literally laughed at him because that's all you can do. Does he honestly believe that Hillary Clinton wouldn't have appointed people to Goldman Sachs had she won? She was friends with the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein. She was friends with him. She was friends with a criminal banker whose bank was in part responsible for the 2008 economic crash. Wall Street did not want Hillary Clinton to win. That's why they were bankrolling Bernie Sanders in certain Democratic primaries. <laughs> this is... I, <laughs> when I watched it, I was speechless. Uh, I hadn't... I didn't know how I was even going to respond to this because if somebody says something that's so stupid that you can't respond because they've thrown all logic out the window, then (laughs) 
this is just this is a new low in terms of stupidity. Democrats continue to lower the bar when it comes to idiotic things that they will say to defend Hillary Clinton. Well, how about this? How about you actually be objective and stop playing team politics and call out corruption on your own side? I like that he's talking about money and politics, but why don't you do the same thing when your own side does this? I mean, this is what frustrated me with Elizabeth Warren. She called out Republicans' connection to Wall Street all the time. She said, you know, Donald Trump, he gave Wall Street a big sloppy kiss, but she was willing to not talk about Hillary Clinton's connection to Wall Street. Okay, if you want any credibility whatsoever, you have to be consistent and call out corruption on both sides because the American people look at you as a joke. They look at the Democratic Party as a joke. Noam Chomsky appeared on Democracy Now! And as one of the most respected academics in the country, he reiterated something that Bernie Sanders supporters have been saying since the election ended. We've been saying that Bernie would have won. You can pretty well predict electoral outcomes simply by campaign funding alone. Uh, there's other factors that intensify it. Here comes Sanders, somebody nobody ever heard of, uh, no support from the wealthy, no support from corporations, uh, the media ignored or disparaged him. Uh, he even used a scare word, socialist, uh, came from nowhere. Uh, he, he would have won the Democratic Party nomination if it hadn't been for the shenanigans of the Obama-Clinton uh, party managers who kept him out, might have been president, uh, from nothing. That's an incredible break. It shows what can happen when policies are proposed that do meet the general just concerns of much of the population. Do you think he could still win if he ran again? Well, there was a Fox News poll a couple of days ago, Fox News, asking uh, who's the, uh, trying to ask who's your favorite uh, political figure. Uh, Sanders was way in it ahead far ahead of any anybody else uh, with no vocal articulate support among the uh, concentrations of power media well, uh, corporations elsewhere in fact if you look at uh, policy uh, preferences you see something similar we already mentioned the health issue that's and on an issue after issue uh, the, the much of the public that is actually voting for their bitter class enemy, if you look at the policies, actually favor social democratic policies, even envir environmental policies. So let me just say, to hear Noam Chomsky say that Bernie would have won, uh, that, that really made me feel vindicated because the Democratic Party establishment, at every step of the way, they've tried to demonize Bernie bros and make us feel as though we're the bad guys and there's something wrong with us for not supporting Hillary Clinton and Hillary Clinton was just a perfect candidate and anyone who couldn't possibly support her because they were worried about her warmongering policies well they were the ones who were wrong they were defective not because you know Hillary's policies were harmful and she didn't really care about the middle class and the lower class it was because there was something wrong with us. So to hear him say that Bernie would have won, I think that's fantastic. Now, he also said here you could pretty well predict electoral outcomes simply by campaign funding alone. And this is a statement that concisely illustrates everything that's wrong 
with legalized bribery in America, especially since Citizens United. But I mean, it didn't all start with Citizens United in terms of our ridiculous system of legalized bribery. I mean, this started back with uh, in Buckley v. Vallejo, where we started to allow corporations to buy off our politicians. But in 2010, with the Citizens United decision, I mean, the floodgates were open. So when you look at Obama, for example, I mean, he took so much money from Wall Street and look at the way that he governed. He governed as a pro-Wall Street president. I mean, he appointed Timothy Geithner to his cabinet. He did everything that indicated to us that even though he's trying to make it seem as though he's trying to reign in Wall Street, well, in actuality, he doesn't really want to reign in Wall Street because Wall Street helps him get elected. And this isn't just with Wall Street. I mean, if you look at healthcare policy, Hillary Clinton, for example, she is one of the most vocal advocates, or she was one of the most vocal advocates of universal healthcare. And during the 1990s, she actually proposed a universal healthcare system. And then what happened was she decided to become a senator and she took money, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, do of dollars from the health insurance industry. And then she changed her position. All of a sudden, you know, universal healthcare, I no longer support that position because I just think it's unfeasible in this political climate. And hey, I tried. We got the child, uh, the children's health insurance program, but that's as good as it's going to get. So, I mean, we just have to deal with our health insurance system. So, I mean, what he's saying here, this is something that is an incredibly important point. If you really want to know how a politician is going to govern, you have to look at their campaign contributions. And that's why we all believed in Bernie Sanders, because he was raising money only through grassroots funding people like you and me. So he won't be beholden to corporations. He won't create policy outcomes that disproportionately favor large multinational corporations because he wasn't taking their money. He wasn't taking billionaire money. So that's why, why after Citizens United, progressives were hypersensitive to the donations of any politician because we know there was a lot at stake in this election and billionaires and corporations were coming out in droves to spend more than ever. And that's what they did for Hillary Clinton. And that's why we just couldn't get on board with Hillary Clinton. We couldn't support her. Now, Noam also says here, Bernie would have won the Democratic nomination if it hadn't been for the shenanigans of the Obama-Clinton party managers who kept him out. And he also adds, it shows what can happen when policies are proposed that do meet the general concerns of much of the population. That's absolutely true. And he specifically mentions shenanigans. I think this is incredibly important. And I talked about this throughout the course of the DNC chair race. And I expressed how frustrated I was that none of the candidates were admitting that the DNC rigged the election against Bernie Sanders in favor of Hillary Clinton. And this is incredibly important because if you don't admit that you did something wrong, then we can't believe that you're not going to do that again. And then they they try to argue with semantics. Well, it wasn't technically rigged because rigged means that, you know, someone can never win. No, what rigged means is that you create rules that make a competition unfair so one person is much more likely to win than his or her opponents. And this is exactly what happened. I mean, Hillary Clinton's campaign early on, before anyone else entered the race, they colluded with Debbie Wasserman Schultz to set the limited debate schedule. And when they anticipated that there would be opposition to this skinny debate schedule where no opponents of Hillary Clinton would have any chance to get their message heard, well, they decided to create this exclusivity clause so no candidate would be allowed to participate in non-DNC-sanctioned debates. I mean, they moved red states up on the primary schedule. They did everything they could to give Hillary Clinton an advantage and make it appear as though they weren't, in fact, giving Hillary Clinton an advantage. The primary was rigged. So, 
It's so frustrating that the DNC tries to imply that we're delusional for calling out this brazenly unfair primary. It was unfair, it was rigged, and it's important that we note that Noam Chomsky is on our side, one of the most well-respected academics in the country, is saying exactly what progressives have been saying all along, so I find this incredibly satisfying. Now, he also talks about how Bernie Sanders is still the most popular politician in the country, thus alluding to the fact that he might actually have a chance in 2020 still, and he also says Bernie has no vocal articulate support among the concentrations of power. And on issue after issue, much of the public favors social democratic policies. Now, as much as I'd like to toot my own horn here and say, you know what, Noam Chomsky, he's saying all the things that I've been saying all along. He must watch the Humanist Report. Really, these are things that are just common sense. I mean, if you look at public opinion polls, now a majority favors a single-payer Medicare-for-all system just like Canada. I mean, he is talking about policies that are overwhelmingly popular, protecting and expanding Social Security. This has support among both sides of the ideological spectrum. So, if you just look at it, this is common sense. It's not surprising why Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in the country. I mean, at a time when more people are independents than registered Democrats and Republicans, I mean, it's not surprising that an independent is the most popular senator in the country. And it's not just because he doesn't have the Democratic or Republican label. It's because he has policy ideals that he constantly talks about that are overwhelmingly popular. So, I had to share this interview. Um, I'm so glad that Democracy Now! asked him this question because it was great. Noam Chomsky is consistently proving uh, why he is the most well-respected academic in the country. It's because he's objective. It's because he's willing to say things that are unpopular but factual. I mean, we care about the facts. We don't care about your feelings. Bernie would have won. Look at the public opinion polls. Bernie Sanders, he has majority support for almost all of his policy positions. So at the end of the day, Noam Chomsky is right. We're right. And I think that this just kind of gives us further validation that we need to keep fighting. Because if Noam Chomsky, someone who I respect so much, says it, then it makes me feel like, you know, we're there's... There's a point to what we're doing. We're not crazy, even though the Democratic Party establishment likes to make us think we're crazy. We're not. They're just ignoring us. They're trying to belittle us. They're trying to silence us. And we will never be silenced. We will always continue to speak out. So I wanted to share another clip with you from Noam Chomsky's interview with Democracy Now! because they actually asked him about the Democratic Party's Russian hysteria. And throughout the course of his answer, I think he said everything that progressives have been saying since day one. Noam Chomsky, I'd like to ask you about something that's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, obviously, all the cable channels, that's all they talk about these days, is the, is the whole situation of uh, Russia's supposed intervention in American elections uh, uh, for a country that's intervened in so many uh, governments and so many elections around the world. That's kind of a strange topic. But I know you've referred to this as a joke. Uh, could you uh, give us your view on what's happening and, and why there's so much emphasis on this particular issue. It's a pretty remarkable fact that, uh, first of all, it is a joke. Uh, most Half of the world is cracking up in laughter. Uh, the United States doesn't just interfere in elections. It uh, overthrows governments it doesn't like, uh, uh, institutes military dictatorships. Uh, simply in the case of Russia alone, it's the least of it. 
the U.S. government under Clinton uh, intervened quite blatantly and openly. They didn't try to conceal it to get their man Yeltsin in, uh, in all sorts of ways. So this, as I say, the uh, it's it's considered it's turning the United States again into a laughing stock in the world. So why are the Democrats focusing on this? In fact, why are they focusing so much attention on the one element of Trump's programs, which is fairly reasonable, uh, the one ray of light in this gloom, uh, trying to reduce tensions with Russia? That's, the tensions on the Russian border are extremely serious. Uh, they could escalate to a major terminal war. Uh, efforts to try to reduce them uh, are, should be welcomed. As a couple of days ago, the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia, Jack Matlock, came out and said he just can't believe that uh, so much attention is being paid to apparent efforts by the incoming administration to uh, establish connections with Russia. I said, sure, that's just what they ought to be doing. So meanwhile, this one topic is the primary locus of concern and uh, and uh, 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 critique, while meanwhile the policies are proceeding step by step, uh, which are extremely destructive and harmful. So, you know, yeah, maybe the Russians tried to interfere in the election. That's not a major issue. Uh, maybe the uh, people on the Trump campaign were talking to the Russians. Well, okay, Can't, not, not, not a major point, certainly uh, less than is being done constantly. Uh, and it is a kind of a paradox, I think, that the one issue that seems to uh, inflame uh, the democratic opposition is the one thing that has some justification and uh, um, um, reasonable aspects to it. He states, it's a joke and half the world is cracking up in laughter at us. That's exactly what I'm saying because the thing about all of this Russian hysteria and how they supposedly influenced the elections by releasing true emails that should have been public in the first place, I mean, by saying that that influenced the elections and for us to complain about it after the U.S. government has interfered in so many elections. I mean, look at Latin America. How many governments have we overthrown to instill dictatorships? So for us to complain about interfering with elections and foreign interference in our democratic process, I mean, talk about the pot calling the ghetto black. It's ridiculous. So I'm glad that he said this. Now, look, of course, that doesn't mean that I condone uh, other countries interfering with our elections, but what they're saying that Russia did, which is supposedly tantamount to interfering with an election, I just don't buy it. I don't think that releasing these emails from WikiLeaks and John Podesta, if we can prove, which we can't at this point, that Russia did in fact do, I don't believe that that had a major influence on the election. And guess who agreed with me prior to the election? Democrats and the media. They said that there were no bombshells, that there was nothing in this in these emails that WikiLeaks is trolling the world because they've released nothing on Hillary, but once we actually see that Hillary Clinton lost the election, well, now all of a sudden we want to worry about the extent to which these emails influenced the election. The media didn't cover these emails, so I don't think it had an impact on the election. I think that Hillary Clinton lost because she had a horrible campaign strategy. She didn't campaign in the Rust Belt. I mean, she didn't set foot in Wisconsin one time, hence why she lost in that state. So I don't think that these emails had an impact on this election. So, I mean, 
it's ridiculous to say that this influenced the election. So I, I kind of laugh when they complain about when the Democratic Party establishment and Republican warmongers like John McCain and Lindsey Graham talk about how much these emails interfered with the election. I don't think it had an impact in the election, and if it did, it was probably very, very tiny. Now, another excellent point that I think he made is he talks about how Democrats are taking the one element from Donald Trump's platform that kind of makes him more desirable, or at least did up until this point, which is him trying to de-escalate tensions between the United States and Russia, and they're trying to paint that as the worst aspect of Donald Trump's presidency. When we should be de-escalating tensions between the U.S. and Russia because if you look at the border, I mean, we are having NATO troops perform military exercises, like Noam said, just yards away from Russia's border, and this is an act of aggression. This is what we're doing. And furthermore, when you look at the media and how they're covering the story, I mean, Rachel Maddow contends that if Trump withdraws troops from the NATO borders and just stops being aggressive, well, then that must prove that he's a puppet of Putin. So, I mean, I think that it's important that we talk about how trying to escalate tensions between the United States and Russia at a dangerous time, it, it, it's just... It's very reckless. So now we have a highly respected academic saying what the Democratic Party is doing. It's very dangerous. We have someone that's an unhinged madman like Donald Trump. This is what the Democratic Party contends. They say he's unhinged. He's not suited to be president. This was basically the thesis of Hillary Clinton's campaign, yet they want to push him to be tougher on Russia. They're trying to egg on an escalation of tensions between the United States and Russia. So it's ridiculous, and I'm so glad that Noam said what progressives have been saying since the beginning of this Russian hysteria. Now, he was also asked why he thinks it's the case that the Democratic Party is doing this, why they're pushing this over policies. And here's what he had to say. Well, you can understand why the uh, Democratic uh, Party managers uh, want to uh, try to find some blame for the fact, uh, for the way they utterly mishandled the election and uh, blew a perfect opportunity to uh, win, handed it over to the opposition. But that's hardly a justification for uh, allowing the Trump policies to slide by quietly, uh, many of them not only harmful to the population, but extremely destructive, like the climate change policies. And meanwhile, focus on one thing that could become a step forward if it was adjusted to move towards serious efforts to reduce growing and dangerous tensions right on the Russian border, where they could blow up. Uh, NATO maneuvers are taking place uh, hundreds of yards from the Russian border. The uh, Russian uh, uh, jet planes are buzzing American planes. Uh, this is something that get out of hand very easily. Both sides, are, meanwhile, are uh, building up their uh, uh, military forces, uh, adding uh, the U.S. Uh, is uh, inst uh, one thing that the Russians are very much concerned about is the so-called anti a, a, a ballistic missile uh, installation that the U.S. is establishing uh, near the Russian border, uh, allegedly to uh, uh, protect uh, Europe from non-existent uh, Iranian missiles. Nobody seriously believes that. Uh, this is a uh, understood to be a first strike threat. These are serious issues. Uh, people like uh, William Perry, the 
who has a distinguished career and is a nuclear strategist uh, and is no alarmist at all, is saying that we're back to the this is one of the worst moments of the Cold War, if not worse. That's really serious, and efforts to try to calm that down would be very welcome. And we should bear in mind it's the Russian border. It's not the Mexican border. There's no Warsaw Pact maneuvers uh, going on in Mexico. And that's a border that uh, the Russians are um, quite uh, reasonably sensitive about. Now, he really goes into detail about what we're doing, and whenever I talk about the acts of aggression that we're committing to try to egg on Russia and escalate tensions with Russia, people will say, well, Mike, I mean, come on, this isn't going to lead to a war, we just need to show strength, but we're beyond showing strength, we're just being aggressive. If you line up troops on the Russian border and you perform military exercises, that's an act of aggression. I mean, imagine if Russia was doing this in Mexico, no makes this point, imagine if Russia was performing military exercises right up on the U.S. border in Mexico. We would consider this an act of war. I mean, we considered him releasing emails allegedly an act of war. So, we, we, this is beyond showing strength. We are just being aggressive right now. And I mean, that doesn't suggest that Russia or Vladimir Putin is innocent, but I mean, we can only influence his actions so much, but we have direct control over our own actions, and it's incumbent on our elected officials not to create a new Cold War. But when I point this out, the response on Twitter or YouTube sometimes is, hey, Mike, why don't you say hi to Putin for me? Because he's apparently your buddy. It's just this is the new McCarthyism. Anyone who doesn't agree with this Russian narrative, they are, they are painted as a shill for the Kremlin or a buddy of Vladimir Putin. Well, I've never met Vladimir Putin. I don't particularly like Vladimir Putin. I think he's an anti-gay authoritarian dictator, and I don't support that. But what I am saying is I don't want a war with Russia. I don't think that this would benefit anyone, Russians or Americans. So I'm looking out for our own interests, and I'm trying to pursue peace. But when you see an alliance being formed between neoconservatives and neoliberal Democrats, well, that's when you have to worry, because we're not talking about showing strength. Like I said, we're talking about brazen acts of aggression that our government is doing. Now, Noam Chomsky quoted William Perry, who said, we're back to some of the worst moments of the Cold War, if not worse. And when I heard him say that, this was something that honestly sent chills down my spine because I've constantly talked about the need to stop with the Russian hysteria because we're going to catalyze a new Cold War. But I think I think we're past the point where we're talking about the prospect of a new Cold War, certainly after Donald Trump launched missiles on uh, on Syria. I think we're in a new Cold War. I think that we need to stop talking about it as if it's something that's going to happen and start referring to the reality of the situation when you have nato troops performing exercises on the russian border when you have trump bombing an ally of russia when you have both parties beating the war drums when you have the media working in tandem with the political establishment to take military action against one of russia's allies we are in a new Cold War. I think it's official. So when I say that Democrats need to stop with the Russian hysteria, I'm not saying it because I'm a Kremlin shell. I've never been to Russia. I don't really care about Russia. I just want peace in the world. But if the United States and Russia go to war with each other, that will destabilize not just those two countries. That will destabilize the entire world. We're talking about World War III. So this is dangerous, and I am 
so thankful that Noam Chomsky took the time to tell it like it is on this issue, even if people are now inevitably going to accuse him of being a Russian shell. So I've always been open about the fact that as progressives, I think it's important that we try to be as reasonable as possible. Now, what I mean by that is we acknowledge the fact that we're never going to agree with someone on 100% of the issue. So even though, for example, I support Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein and often give them favorable coverage, I don't agree with those two on everything. So with that in mind, I think I'm a pretty reasonable person, even though my detractors would say otherwise. But there's one issue, however, that to me is becoming non-negotiable very quickly, and that is a single-payer healthcare system. I'm not willing to budge on this issue, and I think that at this point, I'm willing to reject any politician that doesn't get on board with this, regardless of how progressive they are. I mean, it'd, it'd be a really difficult thing for me to do to vote for someone who is progressive on every other issue with the exception of single-payer, because... I mean, I'm done talking about how people in this country are going bankrupt and dying, even if they have health insurance coverage. I've received emails from viewers who are so worried about any changes to healthcare policy in the United States. We shouldn't have to worry about this. The government should make sure that their citizens are protected from illnesses, just like we're protected from external threats. Well, we should also be protected when it comes to healthcare. So I'm done having this discussion. If you're progressive on everything else with the exception of single payer, I'm not voting for you. I can't take you seriously. Now, it seems as though I'm not alone when it comes to single payer kind of being that that line in the sand that progressives aren't willing to budge on, and now that Trump's healthcare plan failed miserably, progressives are pushing very hard for a single-payer system. And this is worrying some Democrats because they're beginning to realize that if they do decide to run in 2020, uh, in 2018 even, in the midterm election, they will face a single-payer litmus test. So, this is evident in a story released by CNN. They explain Democrats eyeing the 2020 presidential contest could soon face a Medicare for All litmus test from the party's progressive base. After last month's failure of President Donald Trump and congressional Republicans to repeal Obamacare, progressives are going on offense, mounting a new push for single-payer health insurance. So, that last line there tells me that the Democratic establishment is getting worried. I mean, people like Cory Booker, who already sold out to the health insurance industry, they're worrying that the prospects that they could be successful in a Democratic Party primary is diminishing because your base simply will not let up when it comes to single-payer healthcare. And I mean, this should have never been something that they moved away from because the Democratic base was always in favor of a Medicare for All type system. It's just that we had this renewed energy about it when Bernie Sanders brought it back uh, on the national agenda. So yeah, you will in fact face a litmus test if you do not support a single-payer healthcare system, you lose. You don't get my vote. I don't care how much you try to threaten us and blackmail us with a scary Repu Republican candidates like Donald Trump. You already tried that and it didn't work and uh, you're not going to win. I'm not voting for you if you do not support single-payer. So if the Democratic Party nominee does not endorse this idea that we should expand Medicare to everyone, I do not think I can support this person. I, I, I really don't. I don't know who that's going to be at this point, but I don't. And I shouldn't have to negotiate on this one issue. I think 
if there's any issue, this is the most reasonable issue for Democrats to get on board with. It's an issue that would make them exponentially more popular because right now we have majority support in the country for a single payer system. More and more people are getting on board, uh, but they don't think they should support this idea because, you know, Democrats like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, you see these stories about how we should leave him alone because he can't support single payer. He has to pretend to be a Republican in West Virginia because it's a deep red state and people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, they're not going to support Democratic candidates who support a single-payer system, except you don't have to act like a Republican because this story was released on the exact same day. So a focus group of Trump voters that were enrolled in Obamacare were surprisingly open to the idea of a single-payer system. So Vox journalist Sarah Cliff writes, we were in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, sitting in a conference room at a big white table. Perry, who co-owns the research firm Periundum, asked the six-member group a question. Who likes Canada's health insurance system? Who wishes we had something like that? Half of the hands shot up. One of the participants said, there's a lot of countries that it works very successfully in. Another said, everybody, despite income, should be encouraged to take care of their health. And the third participant chimed in saying, I actually like socialized medicine. These are Trump voters. So half of this group, I mean, it's a really small sample size, but half of the, this sample said that they enthusiastically support a single-payer healthcare system. Now, Cliff explains, my conversations have been with Trump voters, not advisors and academics. In all these interviews, including the focus group, I didn't ask about single-payer. The people I was interviewing brought it up on their own, often mentioning the Canadian healthcare system. The voters I've interviewed like the idea of everybody getting equal treatment no matter where they live or how much they earn. They generally talk a lot about fairness. This is something Kathy Oler in Obamacare and enrollment worker who voted for Trump brought up to me when I met her in Kentucky. So, I mean, if the Democratic Party ever wants to get out of this hole that they dug for themselves, they could be incredibly popular if they campaign on single payer, even in red states. Yes, even in red states, because people are reasonable if you explain policies to them. So if they honestly make 2018 and 2020 uh, make single-payer the focal point of those elections, and they say, look, give us the White House, give us Congress, we will fight to make single-payer a priority, and on day one, we will pass it. If they do that, they can win. They can actually win and take back all branches of government. But I mean, if you're worried, Democrats, that we will subject you to a litmus test, whether or not you support single payer or not, you will be. And if you don't, you will lose. That's the bottom line. Well, it's pretty apparent that Hillary Clinton isn't going to be going away anytime soon because apparently she hates America and loves attention. So I think that it's important that we still talk about Hillary Clinton because even though she's out of power, she still has a lot of influence when it comes to the Democratic Party. So she was recently at a Women in the World forum, and besides warmongering and influencing Donald Trump to bomb Syria, which she did in fact do, so congratulations Hillary Clinton, you got what you've been wanting for a really long time, she was asked why she lost the election and Bernie Sanders' name was brought up. Watch her response and try not to get angry. It's not possible. Conducted some autopsies of the election, and I'm looking for lessons learned. And in particular, I mean, do you, I, to what extent do you assign blame to uh, Bernie Sanders, to the media for focusing on emails? How much time to do we? Have? <laughs> 
It was really the weaponization of information, something that、uh, Putin has used inside Russia, outside Russia, to great effect.、Uh, that we didn't, and I'll say this for myself: I didn't fully understand how impactful that was, and so it created doubts in people. But then the Comey letter, coming as it did just ten days before the election. Really、uh, raised serious questions in a lot of people. She is the world's biggest narcissist. I think she's probably more narcissistic than Donald Trump, even because, wow. I mean, and and people will say, you know, she wasn't specifically saying Bernie Sanders. I mean, the person who was asking the question lumped in Bernie Sanders in the media, but. Had she not wanted to place blame on Bernie Sanders, she could have said, "Well, look, I don't, I don't attribute any blame to Bernie, but when it comes to the media, I mean, how much time do we have?" But she didn't say that. Her response was, "How much time do we have?" Simply, she didn't exclude Bernie. She implied that Bernie Sanders, who went against his better judgment and campaigned his ass off for her multiple times per day, that person is responsible for her loss to a reality TV star, Orange Clown. She's blaming him basically. I mean, I, I'm forced to believe because、uh, he dared to challenge her in the primary. I mean, she was supposed to be anointed as the Democratic Party leader. This wasn't supposed to be a competitive primary. So, how dare Bernie Sanders challenge her? So, of course, he's part in part to blame. It's ridiculous. As long as she's influencing the actions of the Democratic Party, Donald Trump and the Republicans are empowered because she's the most unpopular politician in the country. That association is toxic. Her policy ideas are toxic to the left-wing base that didn't come out to support her. So if they continue this association with Hillary Clinton, they lose. She's a pretty divisive, destructive figure in American politics that doesn't take the hint. That Americans just aren't into you. We're not into you, Hillary. We don't want you to be the president. We rejected you once. We rejected you twice. You're the most unfavorable politician. We we don't like you. Go away. Why can't you take a hint? What like what is it going to take for you to have some introspection and realize maybe I should let the country heal and just go away? I don't know what it's gonna. I don't know what it's gonna take. But now you aren't just. Not going away. You are being divisive. It was Bernie Sanders. It was the media who did propaganda for her. It was James Comey. It was Russia. Hillary, do you want to know why you lost the election? Do you want to know why you lost and were defeated by an easily beatable opponent that you 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 know is beatable because of your Pied Piper strategy? You tried to elevate the more extreme Republicans like Donald Trump because you thought it would be easier to beat them, and it was easier to beat them. But you lost because you sucked. You suck. You didn't talk about policy. Your main pitch to voters was that I'm not Donald Trump. Vote for me. We don't come out to vote against someone, Hillary Clinton. That's not the way that voters operate. That's not the way that we behave. You should have been reading political science studies instead of listening to your advisors who know nothing. We come out to vote for someone who offers us something. It's why we supported Barack Obama over you. And it's why the American people ultimately supported Donald Trump. He offered them something, even if it was something that I disagreed with. He talked about policy. He did more than just say, "I'm not Hillary Clinton." So it's really, really frustrating to me to see her continue to be a destructive device of force. And she doesn't want to admit that she did anything wrong. But I mean, even Joe Biden thinks that Hillary Clinton ran a terrible campaign. And look, I just want to address the people who say, "Mike." You've got to stop talking about Hillary Clinton. The election is over. Move on. 
I'm going to tell you why I still talk about Hillary Clinton, besides the fact that she still influences what the Democratic Party does. I still talk about Hillary Clinton because I'm really fucking angry. She rigged a primary against the people's candidate. She rigged a primary against a candidate that would actually have fought for us and not large multinational corporations, not Wall Street. Uh, he didn't want to go to war like her. So yeah, forgive me for being angry. The election just happened. I'm still angry. I thought that I would move on by now, but apparently I'm not. And guess what? I'm not alone. There are still many, pe many people, progressives, who are pissed off. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. We should be pissed off because we were wronged. We were wronged by someone who claimed to look out for us. She's fighting for us. No, she was fighting for herself. Hillary Clinton didn't care about anyone but herself, and she still is being selfish, hence why she won't go away. So Hillary, if you really cared about the country healing, you would go away go back into the woods. You have nothing to offer us. You have nothing to offer us. You're still being divisive. You're still attacking Bernie Sanders, arbitrarily so. Go away, Hillary. Hey, everyone. I am here with Sam Ronan once again. He's back on The Humanist Report after his famous DNC chair race. He became a progressive icon, I think you can say. Um, so, Sam, what have you been up to? What are you working on? How's life been since you uh, are no longer running for a DNC chair? Yeah, man. Uh, so first and foremost, it's been a long time and, uh, you know, I missed you. I really did. Missed I missed you, you too, man. I uh, missed you. We need to do this more often. We, we need to find schedules that correlate. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but uh, that that's kind of what's been going on. I've been traveling all over the country. And I mean all over the country. I mean, I have literally been coast to coast. And in fact, um, next week or in the next two weeks, I'll be in New York City, uh, the New England area for until the 24th. I'll be back for a few weeks, and then I'm going to uh, try and get up to the California, Sacramento area uh, for their uh, state Democrat chair convention, where Kimberly Ellis is going to be, hopefully, our next progressive chair in the for the entire state of uh, California. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of great things coming up, uh, and I've been working on basically uh, fulfilling my, my promise, right? I mean, I ran for DNC chair and I said, I will empower people to run for office because that is what we need to do. And, uh, well, I, I think we might talk a little bit later on the DNC thing, but, mm -hmm. um, what I've been doing is our voice and our voice as an organization is literally that everybody clamors about having a third party. Well, the, the reality is, uh, third parties aren't valuable in every single state, right? Uh, unfortunately, um, most states, you have to be a Republican or a Democrat. You might, you might be able to get on the ballot as an independent, but your likelihood of winning is pretty rough, and, and in Ohio specifically, right? So what our voice is really trying to do is give people, progressives specifically, the opportunity to primary incumbents in their places of power. Meaning, if you're in rural Ohio, you can absolutely run as a Republican because all it is is an R, you know, little are next to your name but we the people will be the ones supporting you same thing with if you have to run as a democrat um we would even be willing to endorse green party candidates libertarians independent candidates whatever throughout the country if it's feasible to win right we don't want to do pie in the sky races we do want you to win but we also want to make sure that we get incumbents out of office because those are the people who are causing all of our troubles mm -hmm. um so I mean, that's like a little brief plug. Um, the other half of it, right, isn't just the organizational part. It's the fact that we're building an application and uh, like a web app, like, um, you know, you can get it on sure. your phone type thing. Yeah. Nice. 
Uh, we're going to be in the Google Store and we're going to be in the Play Store. Hmm. And uh, actually, we're, we're, we need a uh, Google, or an Apple app designer. We need somebody to help out with that framework. But um, beyond that, we'll be in the Google Store at the very least, or the Play Store, I think it's called. Um, and literally, it's a one-stop shop for all things political. It'll show you how to get on the ballot. It'll tell you who's currently on the ballot. It'll give you a place to sign up to volunteer. Uh, it'll give you a place to uh, sign up to be a candidate. I mean, it literally gives you the toolbox in in one area that is essentially the information we lack. I mean, I, I said it in the DNC race. Um, most people have no idea how to even run for mayor, right? I mean, you might know how to run for mayor. I might know how to run for mayor. But I guarantee 99% of the people watching this have no clue. And that's the problem. Like when I went up to Kent State uh, the other day and gave a speech there, Um I asked the audience, I said, how many of you actually know how to run for office? Literally one person raised their hand. Like that's the problem. So with our voice, we're trying to solve a myriad of different problems. We're trying to be the box that, that brings everybody together, right? Or actually the glass, right? Mm -hmm. You got to pour the stuff in the glass and then you put in the ice cubes and then you put in the, you know, the sprinkles and all that crap. The glass is our voice. Justice stand, new uh, 535 Bernie Kratz, progressive movement of whatever. That is what goes in the cup so that we can share it around and spread the the strength and the power because otherwise we keep getting what happens in Los Angeles and all these other major races throughout the country where progressives continue to lose because we're not united and we don't have the support structure. Right. Okay, so first of all, I got a comment. Uh, love the visual aid. Love it. <laughs> our voice. I don't know if that was planned or not, but that's great. Um, so let me ask you this because I haven't heard of our, I mean, I've heard of our voice, but this is the first time I'm really getting the details about it. So it sounds to me like this is basically political resources. If you have a question about something, this is kind of a main hub. If you want to run for office, it's a good starting place. If you want to right. find out how to challenge them. So is that basically, I mean, am I, am I getting this correctly here? It's actually that and more. Um, Everybody wants a third party, and like I just said, third parties aren't viable all over the country. But mm -hmm. what is a party? It's a structure. It's an organization. It's support, right? Being a Democrat or Republican, yeah, there's a platform affiliated and there's a history affiliated with it, right? But essentially, it's literally just money, resources, training, mentorship, and the ability to get on a ballot, right? Absolutely. Well, right. So getting on the ballot isn't hard you run as a republican or a democrat right you can do that anywhere in the country the hard part is getting supporters and getting volunteers and getting the money and getting the fundraising and getting people to know that you exist that's the hard part but that is exactly what uh, a support structure is that's exactly what a political party is it's just a network so if our voice right we have a little i have a little flyer so actually what we have is uh you know our logo our bird can, see, can you guys see that? There you go, the bird. Yeah. Um, and the bird is going to be our symbol, right? So, you know, a bird in flight freedom, right? That That's what we are. We are the the progressive movement is the movement for the future. In flight, not restricted. Um, and if you see that logo or you hear our voice affiliated with, say, my name or even you, hey, Mike's running for Congress and wherever the hell you live and you got the Our Voice endorsement that tells not just people that know what our voice is right but that tells everybody affiliated with it that tells this entire network of progressives that 
the guy who started it, Samuel Ronan, created Our Voice to empower candidates all across the country, and Mike is a part of that? Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Mm. So it, it, it infiltrates the entire progressive and Bernie and Green and whatever network all at once just through affiliation. So what we're really doing, and I know I probably should come up with a better elevator speech than a long-winded, you know, diatribe, but <laughs> <laughs> um, working on it, by the way, I have I have my leadership team uh, yelling at me every day that hey, I do I, this. If you start sounding like Hillary Clinton, nobody's going to join our voice. So as long as you get the facts out there, even if it's not like, you know, perfectly, you know, rehearsed, I think that you're, you're fine because you're explaining it just well. Awesome. Um, and actually, I do have a pitch. It's like a little one-liner, I think. Nope, nope, nope. That's for the Indiegogo. I can't read. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Mission statement. And I got to give a shout out to Zach Holler for writing this for me. Um, nope. Also not. That would be for the the Indiegogo as Is well. Is it I'm Never with mind. him? Is it I'm with him? No. Oh, yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Um, Anyway, I guess I was wrong about my uh, pitch. Um, regardless, it, it's everything you want and need in a third party, but for the sole purpose of infiltrating incumbents up and down the ballot. This is how we win. If we can't win by doing something outside of the box, then let's get inside the box and tear that sucker up from the inside, right? Mm -hmm. People are so tied to this need to be independent or a part of or apart from these these different organizations but they exist so why not use them seriously they use us every single election year and we're fed up with it so let's use them right back same thing with the fundraising super PACs and uh dark money right citizens you money uh, citizens united mm -hmm. is a huge problem because corruption and bribery is effective to the weak Right. Every single buddy, every single person in Congress that's currently elected, you know, at the state legislature, all these people who take these large donor donations and then sell out their constituents for pennies on the dollar. They are weak. They are pathetic mm -hmm. and they can be defeated if we support ourselves. So if one donation is three million or thirty million dollars to this super PAC and then it goes out to the entire Republican Party. Right. Imagine what 30 million people can do. Right, mm -hmm. 30 million people donating $1 is the same thing. The money isn't the issue. It's where it's coming from and who's supporting it. So as long as we're the ones fundraising and bankrolling our candidates, we're fine. And that's the premise. Our voice is the unifying structure that allows us to focus on one thing, winning, getting people on the ballot, elected, and in government so that we can start infiltrating the system. And then we can start making the differences. And then we can start dismantling the corrupt entities. But until we do that, until we come together, we're going to continue to lose like we did, unfortunately, in Los Angeles just yesterday and uh, and the other special elections that have been going, uh, going along around the country. Right. So it sounds like you've been busy, basically, um, in a nutshell, after the DNC chair race. Um, and you're traveling around the country doing different things, giving speeches. Um, so a big question that I know my audience is curious about is, what are you doing in 2018? What's going on with Sam specifically around the November uh, time frame? <laughs> so what, what, where will I be election day 2018? <laughs> hmm. Hopefully asleep. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I... Um, 
I do want to run for office, um, and we can even consider this my soft launch if you'd like. You, right. you get the exclusive first crack you at Samuel. You heard it here Roney. first. I won't. You did. I won't put a banner across the screen like uh, CNN breaking <laughs> Samuel Ronan announces candidacy. I won't do that because that's, right. that's just too cringy. I can't. I can't do that to you. Hey, but you at least get the first crack. You get those right. kudos, right? Those brownie points. Um, nice. I will. I, I have every intention of announcing. I can't make it an official announcement until. Um, the Our Voice uh, org and pack are ready to go uh, and can stand on their own two feet. But I feel like uh, by June 1st, um, I will be ready for an announcement, perhaps a couple weeks or days earlier than that as well. So uh, be looking out uh, in the summer for this guy to be running for Congress. Now, I do know exactly where I want to run. Ohio's 1st Congressional District. That's Steve Shabbat's uh, district, in case you guys know who that is and you want to send him some angry hate mail because... Well, hang on. Um, I can't condone uh, sending people hate mail because we get a lot of backlash <laughs> on YouTube if we send like angry mobs to people. Oh, well, so I, I do gonna... not endorse what Sam Ronan is saying, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take it back. I was trying to be funny and uh, you know, over the top. But seriously, there is a reckoning coming for the first district. Uh, we cannot afford to allow these Republican trolls to continue to sit in power for decades and completely undermine our constitution. I mean, we just saw Paul Ryan care and Trump care emerge onto the uh, congressional floor, right? It got struck down and now they want to push it forward again with even less provisions. Uh, they're trying to defund Planned Parenthood. They're trying to take away the only thing that they anybody did like about it, which was the um, previous conditions, right? They right. want to get rid of that. It's like, oh, guess what? Insurance companies can now discriminate again. Mm -hmm. Like, these are the men cruel. It's so cruel. That's right. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just a cruel bill. It is utterly devoid of humanity or empathy, mm -hmm. and it kind of goes counter to what the whole purpose of government is. The, the a government is supposed to support its population, and what right. the Republicans are doing are deliberately dismantling every social structure and support structure that exists. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we cannot allow that to continue. Um, and any support that I, I can receive, um, be it volunteering, be it phone banking, be it donations, be it just retweeting a tweet, I look forward to it. I welcome it, and I want to thank you in advance. Great, great. Okay, so um, let me ask you this. I kind of want to go back into the DNC chair race because there are some okay. things that I know we're all curious about. So you had a lot of grassroots momentum behind you. There was a lot of enthusiasm behind your campaign. Tell me how many votes you got um, for the DNC chair position. So you got to carry the zero. <laughs> zero votes. And Goose. that was kind of, I mean, we were all, I think you were probably our number one choice for, for a lot of progressives, at least. Keith mm -hmm. Ellison was second. Keith Ellison didn't even win, and then you got zero votes, so it kind of felt as though we were getting slapped in the face, and okay. then you kind of see us, uh, we'll see the establishment patting progressives on the head by appointing Keith Ellison to be the deputy DNC chair, effectively making up a position for him. I mean, what mm -hmm. are your thoughts on that? I found that insulting. I found it as not them trying to extend an olive, olive branch to progressives, but them just saying, well, here, you you get nothing. We'll try out Keith Ellison. We're like him, but really, you know, behind the scenes, we're more like Tom Perez and Hillary Clinton. Just give me your whole thoughts on that because I was incredibly insulted by this. I, I just found it a slap to the face of every progressive that was behind your campaign, that was behind even Keith Ellison's campaigns. 
Well, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, the And the sad thing, too, is the first thing they do with Keith Ellison is make him record a, a donation, pit, uh, donation pitch mm-hmm. and then email it to everybody in the Democratic Party, right? Mm-hmm. And I just... I don't understand it because it's not like they didn't hear the solution to their problems because I delivered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like they weren't aware that progressives were disgruntled and disenfranchised because I told them and I was the example. Um, but you're right. Uh, getting zero votes, I mean, it stung a little bit. I figured I would I would have gotten at least a token vote. But what had mm-hmm. happened right before the votes were cast was Pete Buttigieg dropped out. Mm-hmm. And I think Pete... Yeah, and I think Pete Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg, sorry. I just call um, him Butt Geek. <laughs> well, I mean, I call him Mayor Pete because Buttigieg is hard to pronounce. It is, um, it is. <laughs> you know, when he dropped out, I think that kind of told everybody that would have voted that's like, oh, we don't get a safe round. Because I think there would have been a safe round. Uh, mm-hmm. Some some of the insiders say there wouldn't have been one regardless. Uh, I think there would have been a safe round where – uh, people would have voted for their second pick, right? Mm-hmm. The one that they were, if they weren't going to pick Tom or Keith, they would pick this person, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we would have seen that I would have gotten uh, maybe single digits, possibly 10, 11, a dozen votes. Um, and everybody else probably would have gotten similar. Um, but when he dropped out, there was no safety whatsoever. That was a absolutely, nope, we got to pick our guy and we got to do it now. And Tom Perez almost won outright then and there in that first vote. So what we saw, and then on top of that, and and I can't talk about the vote without talking about what immediately preceded it. Christine Pelosi um, submitted Resolution 33. Now, that's Christine, the daughter, not Nancy, the mother, right? Right. Christine Pelosi, um, I mean, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. She is at least trying to be progressive, even if she's like kind of on that cusp. She's center left. I'll give her that much. She's not left, but she is definitely center left. Mm -hmm. And when she proposed uh, Resolution 33, I I was clapping until my hands bled, right? But And Resolution 33 was getting money out of politics, getting um, corporate donations out of the Democratic Party. They could have done it that day, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they, uh, despite the, the booing in the background, and I mean booing, not like, uh, like ugly pitchforks and torches booing from the back. They still voted against it. They shot it down. They're like, well, we have to take money. No, you don't. If you could get 270 million people to agree on something and give you a dollar to agree on it each month, that's what? $3.4 billion a year or more? Something mm-hmm. like that? I mean, it's an, it's an astronomical amount of money. So the Democrats just repeatedly shot themselves in the foot that day. And then since then, you know, I remember being on CNN for, you know, two and a half hours standing there and only five minutes of speaking. But Mm -hmm. I remember distinctly everybody saying, if I become chair, I will bring everybody else to the table. Mm -hmm. And that also hasn't been happening. And it's not just me. It's uh, two of the Pete's and I think Ray weren't Mm. called up either. They're not on the transition team. And I think that's a problem. I mean, I get that some of us uh, have outside lives and outside you know, requirements and um, responsibilities. But even as an advisor, like even as a, hey, what do you think on this, that, or the other? I mean, that is, I think, the problem. And then you see, um, you know, Keith Ellison saying we should all just suck it up and get over it. And Tom Perez saying uh, we're going to call in everybody's pink slips and then we're going to do this and that. And then he had (laughs) – 
<laughs> you had Debbie herself say, uh, the Democrats are a grassroots organization. <laughs> I just, ah, uh, I got myself a pumpkin spice latte that day because I just couldn't <laughs> even at that. It was ridiculous. And I just, it, it kind of breaks my heart um, because the Democratic Party as an institution, right, as as just an organization isn't flawed. It's the people running it, just like the government, the federal government and the Constitution isn't a flawed document or a flawed system. It's the people right. that are ruining and so when you see people in power going so far out of their way to undermine their own efforts, it's just extremely frustrating and aggravating. And I even reached out with an olive branch to my own county chair. Um, and I was very polite. I can send you the, the email. I, I took pictures of it in a meme. Um, <laughs> and and I, I can send you that email and I can send you her response. And it just does not make sense where the vitriol is coming, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Oh, I can I think... tell you. I think it's because they see <laughs> progressives like an inconvenience. We're kind of like just an annoyance, like a tick on their asses that they so desperately want to get rid of. And that's... Well, I, we're I, the future. Right. We and are. We're the, we are. We're the future and we're the ones that are most riled up. I mean, at the very least, you would think you would tap our energy and at least direct us in a direction. You know, at mm -hmm. least point us somewhere to go. But outright just crushing us and smothering us like that doesn't make sense like honestly if i mean i mean i always have to resort to you know my military background but if i see an eager new troop straight out of basic and tech school um who's really eager asking a lot of questions wanting to get a lot of work done i'm not going to say no sit in a corner and lick a biscuit or something like are you kidding me no i'm going to engage with that airman and if and if that airman turns out to be you know a little just over the top sure fine then you you know instill discipline there's a difference between having enthusiasm without restraint and just being energetic without any way to like distribute it right and so mm -hmm. i feel like the progressive movement is that brand new troop fresh out of boot camp fresh out of tech school arrived to his first duty station right clean pressed uniform sleeves all rolled up all pretty like ready to go right sir yes sir and getting slapped down by the grizzled old chief who's about to retire next year right that's, That's how I feel the progressive movement is being treated by the Democrats, which is exactly why I'm building our voice. That's exactly why I'm doing it, because otherwise, to, let's be real. Uh, this doesn't pay the bills. OK, mm -hmm. uh, my unemployment ran out last month. OK, like I'm living paycheck or a savings account to savings account and go fund me to go fund me right now. There is no reason, no motivation and no benefit to me doing this right now. Um, other than the fact that it needs to get done and nobody else is working. Nobody else is working towards unity. There, there's a lot of people trying to do a thing, like get congressional candidates run, uh, you know, in office or fundraise or do grassroots organizing or do ballot initiatives. I mean, there's people doing individual things, but there's nobody, not a single organization that is actually going out of its way and encouraging people to come together and using their support structure as a launching pad. Like I've offered several organizations that when we incorporate as a nonprofit, you're more than welcome to be a DBA. You get to keep your autonomy. You get to spend a whole lot less money for filing fees and you get to be affiliated with our voice. You get to use our networks and we get to work with you directly. Like, I don't know of any other organization that is doing that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, and what's unique about yours, just to kind of clarify, is 
you know, it's it's not just, you know, liberal. This is for conservative grassroots candidates too, correct? Kind of like brand new Congress or is it more liberal centric? So- Yes and no. It, it is designed for the progressive, but to be able to run in a conservative district as well. Um, oh, okay. So, okay. You know what I'm saying? So, like, say we get that once-in-a-lifetime conservative who actually is progressive. They just happen to live in a district where they have to have an R next to their name, right? Mm-hmm. We would happily support, endorse, and run that person hmm. because they will be able to win and then embody the principles we hold dear. The problem isn't that the progressive message isn't well-liked or well-received in rural areas. It's the the phrasing, the uh, catchphrases, the buzzwords, right? Mm-hmm. The, the triggers. Single-payer automatically gets a door slammed in your face unless you're Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. okay? I am not Bernie Sanders. Um, I cannot say single-payer to somebody and they take me at face value. I have to talk about how healthcare reform benefits people through the taxes they're already paying and not increasing them or paying out of pocket, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing with education. If we had a streamlined education process that was free, the school-to-work process would be simpler. You could actually incentivize employees or employers to hire a certain threshold of brand new students or have better programs to where uh, you'll be hired on as you complete uh, your education, and then you'll have practical experience on top of that. Like the more in- integrated the the employment versus uh, education processes can be, the better off we'll be. Same thing with vocational schools. Most people look at trades as beneath them, but for the most part, like I would say, I would say, trades pay higher than seventy percent of most four year degree programs. Starting well, I mean, out, it's just a matter of doing what you want to do. I mean, I think we're all kind of faced with this question: Are we going to pursue something where we're just happy every day, or are we trying to make money? So, I mean, I, yeah. I think that you know, trade can potentially be a great option. I have a friend that just finished trade school. She's like a hairdresser or something, mm-hmm. um, and you make minimum wage, um, but she likes it. I mean, you do get tips, yeah. of course. I, you know, she she loves doing it. So it's it, you know, it's just a matter of what makes you happy. Exactly. And we should make it as as simple of a process as possible. We shouldn't make you go into debt. Like, because even though she went to hairdresser school or cosmetology school, I think mm-hmm. that's what it is. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Cosmetology school. She still paid money out of pocket to go there. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's a problem because like you said, she's going to be making minimum wage. Right. Now, my brother, he's doing an apprenticeship uh, as an electrician hmm. and he's got two more years left, I think. Or yeah, he's got two more years left and he's going to start making 20 uh, like anywhere from twenty six to thirty dollars an hour. Hmm. You know how old he's going to be? Twenty. That's great. Right. So a twenty year old making thirty dollars an hour. I was making twenty three dollars an hour at Simcoe when I worked there, and I was twenty five, twenty six. Hmm. Right. You know. So my little brother is going to be doing better than I was at the same age. That's great. So that's why I'm saying, like, if we can incentivize the school to work program and make it school free. <laughs> So yeah. that when you do go to work, you're not already in the red. I mean, that's the kinds of things, you know, it, like that's how you explain it in conservative America. And there's other things you can talk about that's progressive, right? Um, you can talk about what clean energy. You well, can you talk, talk about, about branding, like with single pair, you said single pair is toxic, kind of like the word welfare is toxic. But if you if right. you use certain phrases like Medicare for all, that's totally right. different because people know what Medicare is. If you think single exactly. pair, that sounds foreign <clears throat> because it literally is 
for. And, you know, it's a Canadian system, but if you say Medicare for all, which is basically the same thing, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I know what Medicare is. You know, I know someone on Medicare or I'm on Medicare. So I think you're right. I think that, you know, there's no such thing as an, I mean, not every, the per- it, there's not unwinnable districts, I guess is what I'm trying right. to say. If right. you If you just pitch your message correctly. That's right. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, what we're going to do is we're providing the candidate materials, uh, uh, material templates, um, and then uh, guidelines on how to run a campaign, what kind of staff you would need. Uh, Of course, the ground game resources to help, you know, you with like campaign management and all that good stuff, but also the progressive agenda translate into wherever you are. And here's the other thing. We're not going to make a candidate adhere to a cookie cutter strategy because as we all know, that doesn't work. Politics isn't black and white. And even better, we want to do a canvassing and GOTV app uh, that will either be a sister app to the Our Voice or it'll be a part of the Our Voice. But one way or the other, it creates a heat map. But a heat map of policies of what issues matter the most to people. So let's say you're in rural America, but surprisingly, the things that matter the most to people are healthcare, women's rights, and uh, jobs, right? Not guns, not abortion, not the economy, right? I mean, jobs, I guess, is part of the economy, but those are the top three things. Well, now you don't have to waste your effort talking about clean energy, or you don't have to waste your effort talking about universal this, that, or the other. You can focus on healthcare, women's rights, and jobs, and run your entire campaign directly to the people that you're going to represent. That is unheard of. It's unprecedented. It doesn't exist because all the GOTV and canvassing apps are, are you Republican, Democrat, or other? Hmm. That doesn't tell you squat. Right. But so it just kind say, of tells you what, you know, constituents in certain yeah. areas really care about. Right. right. Yeah. Now, and it'll be... Yeah. Let me ask you this, though, because what about people who would uh, criticize that saying, well, you're just kind of pulling a Hillary Clinton. We're in the South. You speak about certain policies and then you go to the Pacific Northwest and you're talking about other things and you're kind of flipping it. I mean, this isn't. Do you think oh, no, that no. this would kind of give people um, the idea that, you know, they need to be fake and, you know, try to pander? Or do you think that this is just more educational? Because, I mean, obviously, we don't want people to pander. But, right. I, I mean, I think it is important that they do know what constituents in that district want as well. So, I mean, how do you balance that? I mean, yeah, no. And thank you for bringing it up because it was something that was brought to my attention as well when I first pitched it. Because um, I pitched it completely different than I did just now. Um, the idea being what works in the South won't work in the North. What works in Springboro, Ohio, isn't going to work in Lancaster, Ohio, even though they're both rural communities. And it's about targeting your audience, right? If you're going to go to a college, are you going to talk about uh, retirement? And the same thing, if you're going to go to a retirement community, are you going to talk about gun rights? Well, I guess it would depend, right? Maybe. But <laughs> So retirement community, are you going to talk about uh, going back to college? Right, sure, no. sure. That right. makes sense. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to see what does your community actually care about? Mm-hmm. And then target your message to them using the progressive model, right? Progressivism, we've already established, is the future, is something that everybody likes across ideological spectrums. The problem is the trigger words. So you take universal healthcare and you translate it into moderate and conservative. And then depending on where you are, that's the pitch you use. Hey, if you're in California, you lucked out because you can talk about all of the liberal and progressive things you want to your heart's content. But for the rest of us poor bastards in the Midwest, we're going to have to translate that into conservative. 
I'm not lying. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling anybody. Uh, I'm not pandering. Right. Mm-hmm. I am literally explaining to them the progressive agenda in a way that they can stomach it, the way that they can understand it. Um, well, and one thing that I want to emphasize here, just to kind of give you like a suggestion, not because I don't know anything about de- designing this type of organizations, but I think that one thing that we've seen that's effective is just having conversations with people. Like yep. if candidates explain their position, I think that you can potentially use, you know, trigger words so to speak, if you really explain your position, because that's one thing that I think is lacking, is there's Mm -hmm. no political dialogue, there's no sense of discussion anymore. Um, So we throw around these key terms, like, you know, big government, but nobody explains what these terms actually mean. So I think that if you can really focus on, or people kind of embody the idea that they have to talk to people, I think that goes a long way, and I kind of think that that's what your app is getting to, to where just, you know, having more discussions and, you know, trying to structure it in a way that will be appealing to people that might not necessarily be inclined to uh, accept that message. Like if someone's anti-big government, they're going to mm-hmm. reject single payer just automatically. But I mean, there was, there was, I don't know if there was a poll or a focus group. I saw the headline, um, um, yeah. basically that Trump voters, like half of Trump voters in one focus group, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. they support the idea of single payer, which, you know, I think that that's, fascinating because i wouldn't have expected them to support the idea of single pair but right. uh you know when you see if they supported trump and you look back at trump's prior comments he actually did support single pair pretty pretty uh adamantly so so you know i think it's just about discussion you know i think that i think mm-hmm. that's important so as long as candidates are talking to people and they're just not so detached to where they have to literally hold lessons on how to talk to real people like the democrats <laughs> yeah. are doing I think they oh will be God. okay. <laughs> no, and, and that's the point too. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if I run for Congress, or I guess when I run for Congress, I mean, can I personally knock on every door? No, that's impossible. I I think I'd be representing seven hundred fifty thousand people. Right. But the conversations need to be had, and they need to be had in a genuine, understandable, realistic manner. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what the translation is all about. If I just wanted to bludgeon you with progressive rhetoric, I wouldn't try and reach you on your level, and I would lose dismally. Mm-hmm. That's what the Democrats do. It's like, nope, we're going to run a Democratic campaign no matter where we are in the country. Yep. We've got our look eight at talking we points. We have to stick, uh, you know, stick to the script and whatnot. We have to say mm-hmm. it word for word. It's it's annoying. It, it doesn't feel realistic and whatnot. And I, you know, just to kind of share a personal story, I actually worked for, I don't know the name of the organization, just briefly um, through college, where they were trying to do fundraising for the human rights campaign. And they gave us a script that we had to memorize to talk to people to ask them for donations. And they were Mm. very adamant that you, you, you know, you stick to the script, you don't deviate from it. And I was doing that and I got zero donations people didn't want to talk to me because it sounded fake you know it, it didn't seem authentic yeah. but the minute that my my superior went away and i was kind of on my uh my little area it was like a mall area in front of a starbucks but okay. when she went away and i was able to just talk i ditched the script i just talked to people and explained to them you know uh this is what we're doing we're raising money right now we're trying to repeal don't ask don't tell this was back in like 2010 um, yeah. And we're trying to um, get this. Thanks, by the way, for trying to fight that early on. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It was something that, you know, I I wasn't in the military, but my brothers were. So, I mean, I think it's important that people in the military, you know, they're not treated like shit. I think that we should all <laughs> we should all be on board with that. And that's kind of the way I explained it. You know, it's just a matter of we have people in the military right now 
who are, it's basically a witch hunt. And I know that this isn't something that you necessarily hear in the mainstream media. You don't hear people telling their stories, but it's what it, it's what's happening. I've, I've watched videos of vlogs online of people from the military that were ousted because people were actively looking for people who are LGBT. You know, just for example, so I, I, I got a ton of donations and uh, on that day when I ditched the script, I raised more money than everyone else. I mean, it was like 200 bucks, but I mean, there's still a, right. a shitload of money, you know, just yeah. for people. So, I mean, I, I think that, natural conversations are so important you know they are and that's what they don't understand like uh, granted i am a good public speaker like if i can toot my horn about anything it is that i am definitely a good public speaker and i'm very good at debate those are like the only things i'm good at which has only benefited me now in life because mm. in the military it didn't do much for <laughs> oh, me. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. You know, somehow telling the colonel he's wrong, I just, you know, for whatever reason, they don't like that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's true. Um <clears throat> you if if I had if first of all, if I saw the vocabulary that I did in uh, high school, you probably wouldn't understand a damn thing I'm saying and you're a smart guy. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like that's my point. I can't talk like a dictionary to people that I'm trying to get to listen to me and understand what I'm talking about. You have to talk to people in a way that they understand it. Mm -hmm. So, sure, if I'm in front of like a NASA convention, I can use all the big fancy words I want. Not that I have them anymore, but mm -hmm. if I did, I could. But if I'm talking about, you know, healthcare policy, right, which is a big complicated thing, but I want you to understand it. Why would I try and confuse you and make you feel like you're I'm belittling you? Mm -hmm. Why would I want to make you feel insignificant and insecure like you're not smart enough to talk to me? That's the other problem. <clears throat> and it's something that conservatives have mastered. I mean, I have to give a few props where props are due, right? The Republicans mm -hmm. have played the game oh, and they played it freaking well. Absolutely. And absolutely. It's it's mind-boggling, but they do it and mm -hmm. they speak simply. And Part of that is also an understanding of what you're um, speaking about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I was a uh, subject matter of uh, if um, bleh, if I was a subject matter expert of astrophysics, but I couldn't explain astrophysics to you simply, then I am not a subject matter expert. Mm -hmm. And I think that was I think that was Einstein who said it. If you cannot explain something simply, then you do not understand it well enough. And mm -hmm. that is politics. That's how you. That's how you reach people, and that's what we have to do. And that's the fundamental uh, premise behind my race for the DNC, my race for state rep, uh, my idea, the premise for helping candidates for our voice. And it's going to be exactly what I do when I run for Congress again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, now we're an echo chamber, but that's the point. <laughs> like you're no, absolutely I, right. <laughs> I think no, I, I I feel you. I think that you know what you're doing is. It's bigger than you. Like, I, I can see that, you know, you're trying to help others get involved. And we all kind of agree, you know, it's time for progressives to to leave their houses and to start running for Congress. You know, we can't just, well, we have Bernie Sanders, at least. You, you know, we can't yeah. do that anymore. We've got to be. He's just, he's one person. We have to realize, right. first of all, we're selling ourselves we are selling ourselves short if we're only relying on one person. Right. If we're only depending on Bernie Sanders, what about the rest of the 270 million people who can vote or run for office? Mm -hmm. There are 500,000 elected uh, positions in the country, and at any given time, what, in any given year, like 100,000 of them, 200,000 of them are up for grabs? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, Constantly. Hello. Right. Yeah. So that is what we need to be doing. And <clears> – <throat> I'm not hitting I'm not hating on what happened in Los Angeles. That is just the literal most recent example of disunity. Mm -hmm. There were 20 progressive candidates 
if it had been narrowed down to like the Green Party candidate mm-hmm. and maybe one other progressive and then the two uh, dino Dems mm-hmm. and then like the Republican and the Libertarian and the guy who ran as an independent, if it had just been narrowed down to seven and the progressive community at large supported either the Green Party candidate mm-hmm. or whoever was designated as the progressive Democrat, mm-hmm. right? That would have split our vote and resources by two rather than 20. Sure. And we would have made a much better showing. It would have also split our donations less. Mm-hmm. And here's the – I mean I hate to say it, but money is um, money is power in politics. Mm-hmm. And you and I can agree to disagree and argue all day long about how money is corrupting or how uh, people are weak and that's why it's corrupting or that Citizens United is legalized yeah. bribery. But at the end of the day – Money plays a role, and we have to be smarter than what we've been. We have to see the big picture. If money is involved and there is no way around it, then let us utilize it. Let us acquire it. Let us amass it and use it for our gains. Let us, the people, the many, the thousands, the millions, come together, donate a dollar or two, raise $20 million in L.A., and then shove that down the throats of the DNC, mm-hmm. right? There's what? I think tw- 10 million people in L.A. County or, or uh, Los Angeles, that district, 10 million people were there. If each of those 10 million people had supported um, – I'll, I'll name drop. If those 10 million had supported either Kenny or Arturo and given each of them either a dollar or even if they split it in half and gave uh, Kenny a dollar and Arturo a dollar split in half. That's five million dollars mm-hmm. right there. One dollar. People do not understand that one dollar multiplied by millions is how we win. That's how our voice gets heard. Now, most people can donate more than a buck. Most people, most of my donations have been five, ten, twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. The the highest, I mean, I've gotten some pretty high donations, and thank you for that, by the way, but completely unnecessary don't spend that much money <laughs> on me um but the those high dollar donations they, they're unnecessary five or ten bucks multiplied by a thousand people that's a campaign five or ten bucks multiplied by a million people is a governor's race a senator's race a congressional race mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying that is our strength and we have been under utilizing it i like it and it sounds like you know progressive unity is what you're calling for like a cohesive message i like it i think it's great um so yeah i like what you're doing so any i won't keep you any longer but any closing things you want to do anything you want to plug any websites i mean if we are curious about the progress of our voice um how can we track that my shameless plugging now there's a qr code on here i don't know how fancy the technology is but that should be clear enough for somebody to use in either case we are doing two things. We are going to be launching an Indiegogo, which will be fundraising our super PAC. Now, that word, that phrase might be a trigger for some. But let me assure you, this super PAC is a tool, a weapon, just like we've been discussing all day, to be utilized against the establishment. If we can put $10 million of our dollars into this super PAC and then spread out that $10 million to our candidates for our support and our needs, we win. Right. The problem is, is when big farmer or big oil donate ten dollars. Right. So that's the Indiegogo that will be coming out um, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're retooling it. Uh, we're also accepting uh, video scripts. Um, if you go to my Facebook, uh, my personal Facebook is Samuel Ronan. You'll know it's me because there's over three thousand friends on it. 
or to my uh, verified account, which I think I just updated, Ronin for progress. So Ronin, the word for F-O-R, progress. Or my Twitter account, which is Ronin, the number for progress. Um, If you go to any of those things, you'll see somewhere down there uh, the script and to submit the video and it'll be a part of the commercial. You will be part of our initial launch phase. Um, The other thing we're doing is uh, continuing to amass talent. You guys are exactly what is needed in the progressive movement. You are the social media experts. You are the ones who can proliferate a message. You're the ones who can write and blog. You're the ones who can do video and graphic design. You're the ones who are programmers and editors. You're the ones who can organize at the grassroots level and get people uh, energized and ready to go. We need all of it. We have a 50-state structure that will develop into a a 3,000-plus county structure. We're also going to have plans ready and toolkits designed to help establish campus-level Our Voice organizations as well. And all of that can be gotten from our website, ourvoiceinitiative.org. Go through it. Um, There's the Resources tab. There's the uh, Our Team tab. Uh, Let me double check here, um, the action tab, uh, donate to our voice, join the team, fill in the data, contact. Um, all these different things allow you to have your voice heard and become stronger by working together with fellow progressives. Um, so more to come on that. Uh, there's also going to be my events coming up in New York City, uh, like the New England area. There's going to be one event on 420, which is the Get Money Out of Politics event. People like Tim Black, um, J- uh, Jordan Sheridan, if he show if he's you know in town, um, we got Ali Mirza, we got um, I have to look at the, the the events, but we got plenty of speakers who are local elected candidates, who are uh, progressive leaders, who are just phenomenal people, uh, and they're going to be there as well. So if you're in New York City it, on the twentieth, come out. Otherwise, support it and proliferate it because. This isn't done. I'm not done fighting for you, and we shouldn't stop fighting for each other. All right. Sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Sam Ronan. That's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all for tuning in so loyally each week. Uh, But before I end the episode, what I want to do now is take a moment to individually recognize each person who decided to sign up on Patreon uh, and humanistreport.com to become a member, many of which did so even before I said uh, anything about the YouTube demonetization issue. So I, I really want to give individual recognition to every single person who stepped up. And if your name is not on the list, if you signed up within the last couple of days, I will be thanking you by name next week. So these are the people who I will be thanking today in alphabetical order, um, arranged by first name. Aaron Mendoza, Adam Zayas, Alan Yeager, Alexander, Alexi Martinez, Allison Swanson, Amit Singh, Amy Zhang, Andrew Borsenko, Andrew Guerreria, Andrew Hewitt, Andrew Mikesell, Andrew Na, Andrew Walsh, Angelica Duncan, Angelique Shelton, Anne Wooster, Anna Southwell, Annie F., Anu Naik, Anurada Naik, April Ford, Becky Lynch, Ben Ladizma, Benjamin Lackman, Bennett Harbo, Bernard Rabinald, Bobby Haynes, Boris Yanachkov, Brant Tudor, Brent Golaher, Brian Early, Brian Thomas, Bryant Mark, CC Coutino, 
Kale, Granilo Weaver, Kara Dennison, Casbro, Charmaine Foltz, Chris Lozano, Chris Pelham, Chris Wood, Christian Peterson, Christian Vale, Christopher Fields, Christopher Gear, Christopher Vasquez, Chuck King, Serenio, Ruiz, Claudia May, Clue, Courtney Durham, Daniel GR, Daniel S, Daniel Sullivan, Dat Caddy, David Bonekey, David Brokaw, David Filipiak, David Newberry, David Paladian, Dax Jacobson, Deb Bracknell, Dennis Clotier, Diego Trejo, Don Cupido, Doreen McGuire, Dude in the Night, Emily Surratt, Emmy Sanchez, Eric Pelkey, Eric Cush, Eric Shin, Aaron Blair, Ernesto Vasil, Esmeralda, Frias, Axis, Fabiola Dominguez, Felix, Faye Adelstein, Francisco Antonio Medina Saldana, Frank Black, Frank M. Tenzer, Fred, Free Fox, GBSA, G. Carlin Disciple, hopefully that's George Carlin, if so, that's awesome, Gabrielle Luke, General Jowie, George Bissett, George W. Shannon, Gilda Mosley, Gone Artsy, Grant Keeling, Harvey Emmerich, Hayden Ellison, Heather Neifer, Hector Manuel Menivar Valdez, Holly Edgecombe, Howdy Doody, Humza A, I.B. Kaliosho, Isan Hassoun, Ian Neal, Ingrid Laplanche, Irving Gonzalez, Isamu Kusaka, Jack Harwood, Jack Robolito, Jack Sorel, Jacob Lee Cowles, Jacquees Lafere, Jake D. Hagood, Jacob Barber, Jalen Cadill, James Wengro, Jan Henning Clayson, Jason Early, Jay Riddle, Jeff Cleese, Jenny Wu, Jerry, Jessica, Jimmy Kam Kwong, Jethan Vijayan, Johannes Merkel, John Robinson, John Tuka, John Harvey, Jonathan Milstein, Jonathan Spencer, Jonathan Vasquez, Jorge Alvarez, Joseph Novella, Joseph Tare, Joseph Wilson, Joyce Maddox, Julio, Justin Murphy, Kamar Bennett, Kathy Diane Sizemore, Katrina Coffey, Ketsy, Kevin Dolan, Kiersner Garcon, Chris Chandler, Kyle Herbert, Lachlan Whitehall, Larry Vieira, Laura Smith, Leanne Ann Hurst, Leon Chow, Linda Sharp, Lindsay aka Snee Momsen, Lorenzo McGregor, M Street, Majid Riaz, Mark, Marcus Tomasi Sardi, Maria Arafea, Sorry if I'm butchering uh, some of your guys' names here. Martina Holzbecker, Mary Ellen Wilson, Mary Jane Hackney, Matt Russell, Matthew Fontana, Matthew Zeldon, Michael DeVoe, Michael Irwin, Michael Remy, Michael Ross, Miguel Angel Pablo, Mitch McDonald, Moises Estrada, Martin Wastason, Nancy Kohler, Nancy Underhill, Niamwich, Nick Luro, Nick Sparopoulos, Nicole DeVita, Nico Murphy, No Alternative, Nzinga Eduardo, Orlani Silvio, Fat, Paige Hafner, Patrick Babcock, Perry Ramstad, Peter Harrison, Peter Petrov, Peter Willette, Philip Morrison, Pierre Richardson, Rachel Rasmussen, Rachel Steely, Rachel Stoker, Ramiro Lopez, Rebecca Delane, Rebecca Taylor, Reese Davidson, Ricardo Contreras, Ricardo... Mantalban, Richard E. Flores, Rich, Richard Marcelin, Richard Reich, Robert H. Robert G. Houston, excuse me, Robert Greenhouse, Robert Tarani, Robert Jimenez, Ruben Nieres, Ryan, Ryan Harper, Ryan Shaver, 
Rhine or Rin, uh, Samuel Soon, Sanj Shima, Sarah Creighton, Scott Blanford, Scott Bloom, Sean Sunija, Sean Wins, Sapir Amor Poor, Seth Pitts, Sharam Ali, Shane Dean, Cheryl Garnick, Shirley Hickman, Simon Boll, Spencer Morris, Stephen Byrne, Stephanie Estrada, Stephen Lobolita, Stephen T. Kesey, Stephen Capra, Stephen Frenet, Stout Ninja, Susan Sochko, Swami Amala, Ted Ingalls, The Bibbling Prophets, Thomas Gager, or Giger, Thomas M. Ward, Tim Bowie, Timothy M.A., Tom Anderson, Toshkin Cooper, or uh, Toscon Cooper, excuse me, Trayvon Hudson, Tree Chu, uh, Tissam Vang, Tricia Miller, Vaughn Jenkins, Vish Singh, Wakia Smith, Wiley Harp, Will Wilcarter, uh, Wynn Carter, Yarrow, Zach Bergman, and Zachary Hughes. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. Um, you guys really, you gave me a lot of hope, and I'm not. I'm not just speaking for myself, like any of you who signed up to be a patron, for anyone, Kyle Kalinske, Jimmy Dore, Benjamin Dixon, you really have made our weeks that much more manageable. You, you've, you've been so inspirational. You've come to the rescue of us. In many cases, again, before we even asked you to, thank you all so much. Let me, <laughs> let me apologize for butchering many of your names. Uh, as someone who gets his last name butchered all the time, I know how it feels, but I'm so sorry for doing the same thing to you. Thank you all to these people, really. So uh, that is the, en the end of the episode. I'm going to finish filming now because there's a big storm in Portland. Hopefully uh, <laughs> I can get through this and edit all the videos before we lose power. But, you know, I'll see you all next week. Thank you all so much.